Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from SafeAdeen.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, SafeAdeen.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeaddeen.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Standard Podcast Seminar. In today's seminar, our guest is Fode Diop, who is a software engineer and the founder of Bitcoin Developers Academy. He is the co-organizer of the Africa Bitcoin Conference, the first ever Bitcoin and Lightning Conference in West Africa, which is going to be held in December in Accra in Ghana. Fode is passionate about financial inclusion, as well as finding solutions to the currency problems in Francophone Africa. And Francophone Africa has a pretty uh, astonishing and very interesting set of currency problems that are quite unique uh, worldwide. You know, everybody in the world has their money problems and everybody has their central banking problems. But I think uh, 
West Africa's currency, which is the CFA, is quite fascinating. And um, I uh, I heard uh, for they speak about it at a conference in uh, Wharton School a few months ago. And I thought uh, I need to talk to him in depth about this and uh, to get to know more about it. And uh, also, more importantly, perhaps, to get to know more about what he is doing about it. So it's not just, uh, we're not here, you know, this is Bitcoin. We're not just here to uh, moan and complain. Um, <laughs> we take action. And for days doing things with Bitcoin and Lightning that I think are very, very fascinating and interesting to uh, learn about, as well as, of course, uh, the recent news about the Central African Republic um, wanting to adopt Bitcoin as official currency. So, Fode, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Safe I really appreciate it. I really admire you so much. Just even being here, like, it's just really a uh, a um, a honor to be here, man. I like the, the Bitcoin standard is like one of my like Bibles that I keep actually in Senegal. It's funny enough, actually, I have two books in Senegal. I have the Bitcoin standard and I also have the sovereign individual. And my mom keeps them for me in Senegal. So when I go home, I can just take him and go to the beach and read them again and like really get re- reacquainted with the, with the information. So thank you for having me. It's really an honor and a pleasure to be here. Thank you, sir. That's very, very kind of you. Thank yes, you. Um, so uh, tell us, first of all, a little bit more about you personally. Um, what brought you to Bitcoin and um, wow, what uh, interests you in it? Sure. Where did you come from? Uh, from a, you know, what, what was your background that drew you into Bitcoin? Mm-hmm. Sure. So to make a long story short, um, I was born and raised in Senegal, in West Africa. And um, I, was, I grew up there until after high school uh, when I was 18 years old. And I had a chance to uh, go to the U.S. to study computer science and to play basketball. And then ultimately, um, I uh, worked in a, um, as, a, as, a, as a network engineer in the Midwest, in, a, in, in the U.S. for a while. Then I ended up going to, um, going to uh, in, in, in uh, California to work in Hollywood for about a decade or so. But when the, um, when the iPhone came out, I felt like uh, the world was about to change. You know, because I was always a technologist. I was a computer science major already. And I think I had like really an insight on like technology and information uh, technology and so forth. So at the time, whenever I used to go home, I used to basically give my family like phones, like smartphones, right? And for the history of smartphones, for the longest time, no one was able to like really quiet, be able, was able to browse the internet like they were able to do so on their computer, right? So when the iPhone came out, and then Steve Jobs basically demoed the iPhone and said that the Safari browser that's in the phone is the same as the one in your computer. I knew the world was about to change because what I realized was that for the first time, actually, anybody in the world had the same chance of accessing information on the, on the Internet and with the same tools, which actually means actually the browser and so forth. Right. So at that time, I left Hollywood. And I'm like, man, I think it is actually technology is going to be is going to be really amazing. So what I did was um, I had a small idea to create like a, a event discovery um, application on the iPhone. This was really the first time when the iPhone's App Store came out in 08. So I took all the courage that I had. I left Hollywood. I moved to Las Vegas. And I said, okay, I'm going to basically build this app to people, help people find events, parties, and so forth, right? Me and my friend actually from, uh, from California. Funny enough, I moved to Las Vegas in January 3rd, 2011. And the building that I moved in, there was a Bitcoin and Linux meetup on the first floor of that building. Right. So, and mind you, actually, this is like 2011. And mind you, I, 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 we already went through the whole financial debacle between 2008 and 2011. Right. I actually almost lost my house in California. It's a long story, but we can like, talk, actually talk about it if necessary. So I was, was already thinking about, you know, like the economy was so bad at that time between 2008, 2011. Right. The whole debacle with the whole Lehman Brothers, like things happened at that time. 
So I started thinking about money and all these things. I started watching CNBC for the first time in my life. I have never, never even watched CNBC. So I started thinking about asking myself all these questions about money and so forth, right? And I think at some point, I either discovered Bitcoin either through Reddit or maybe like through Hacker News. I was reading somewhere, but it didn't quite actually register. So fast forward a couple of years later, I moved to Las Vegas, like January 3rd. I go in there and there's a meetup happening in my building on the first floor. So I go in there and this guy is very intense, like really passionate about Bitcoin. And I'm sitting there thinking about, I said, okay, well, why is this guy so intense? Like, why is he so gung-ho about Bitcoin, right? There's something, there's got to be something there. So finally, I said, let me actually read, read the white paper. And that's what everything changed for me. The minute I read the white paper, I wasn't even thinking about America. What I was thinking about, I said, okay, we got the two tools now. We have a mobile device. We're actually, which actually enables us to actually, which is pretty much becoming a small computer in your pocket. And we have this like global, unstoppable, unstoppable non-governmental money, like really showing up in the space. And there was a finally a way for basically Africans to participate in the global financial system. And that's really actually how I discovered Bitcoin. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... Uh... Uh, Michael Sarah speaks about the uh, this way of thinking of Bitcoin as yes. just being the continuation of the smartphone, the, the, exactly. the, the team material, the dematerialization of uh, physical infrastructure. That's right. And you know, Amazon did it for shopping. Um, uh, Apple's iPhone did it for pretty much uh, most things that we use. You know, you, you book the cab now through the phone and you do, uh, your phone and your computer and all kinds of things and all kinds of economic processes are just being added onto your phone. And um, as I think you say, and as uh, Michael Saylor says, you know, what Bitcoin does is that it does the same thing, but for money, for money at the exactly. back end, which is exactly. just an incredibly powerful idea. Incredibly powerful. And actually, like, and also, like a lot of people at the time, I realized that people don't really go to Africa. So I don't really know. Most people are not. Maybe they, 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 they have traveled there once and no. But for me, coming from there, I felt like I, have, I had a unique perspective because I grew up in Africa, but also I, 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 I became a man in America, right? So I have like these two versions of the world in my head where I knew actually where things kind of connect and actually like where basically Bitcoin fits in, the, in, in that whole equation. Because most people actually say that Africa is, is, is mobile first. Actually, it's the other way. Africa actually is mobile only. They are like the majority, the majority of the people there will only basically interact with the internet through a mobile device, through actually a phone itself, right? They have never touched a computer. They don't know how it operates. It's mostly actually, it's really mobile only as a matter of fact, right? So the so actually solutions we need there, like having mobile only kind of a kind of a society and having this mobile kind of a money actually now, to me, it was a game changer. And that's how I actually see like the dematerialization of like uh, of mobile, of, of communication and also of money. And that's how I yeah. saw it. Yeah. So um, fast forward 10 years later, 11 years later, um, what are you doing about it? Well, before we get into what are we doing about it, tell us about the problems of West Africa. That's the most interesting, uh, probably the most interesting monetary experiment anywhere in the world. It's, it's, uh, I mean, we use the word uh, shitcoin to describe all kinds of different things. But uh, if you want (laughs) any shitcoin to look good, Compare it with the CIFA. Yes. So what was it like growing under the CIFA? And tell us a little bit more about the CIFA. Well, actually, so the CIFA is, is basically this currency, um, this colonial currency, that's, uh, which, which, was a, which was a pact between France and the ex-colonies. So Senegal, actually, we received our independence, so-called independence in 1960, not even, not, not even that long ago. And actually, most African countries in the West Africa have received their independence around that time, right? So there... There are about 14 African countries, which actually are ex-French colonies. They all speak French, and they also all share the same currency, which is a CIFA, they call it the CIFA or the Franc CFA. And what it was is that 
when basically, actually, so France left in the, in the 60s and they really left two things behind in West Africa. They left the language, the French language, and they also left this currency, right? Mm -hmm. And this currency was a way for them to control the ex-colonies. So give them like a seeming, seemingly kind of an independent kind of a thing, you know? And then, but they left the currency behind. So they wanted to be able to control the colonies while they were gone. And actually, really, the way actually this thing happened, actually, was really, it's an extension of like fascism. That's really what it is. Because ultimately, when France was under occupancy by the Germans during the Second World War, when Germany came, they took away the French franc from the France when France was under occupation. And they gave them a uh, specially denominated Deutschmark for them to use in France itself, right? So they had to basically uh, um, uh, pay, uh, like actually transact with this particular currency. They had to pay their taxes with this particular currency. So when uh, the, the war was over, the French, the financial advisors, General, General Charles de Gaulle basically had the idea that from what they learned from the French and actually see, they saw how, how actually effective that was. And they said, okay, well, we're going to do the same thing to these African countries. So we basically, we can pull out and not, not necessarily pull out, actually. Because if you control their money, if you control the technological, basically, monetary system itself, we can control this country, these countries. We can have their basically reserve deposited in the, in the French treasury itself, right? They can pretty much like print, like let's say, let's say like these countries basically sell goods, raw materials in the international market, right? They sell gold, oil, or um, or like uh, precious metals or whatever, right? They get paid in US dollars, which is this foreign currency, but they cannot use this currency to pay their people. So they have to take this money, send it to France, and France in turn max this IOU in this basically ledger and in turn prints this paper physical money that they basically ship to these African countries because the money for, for these 14 countries, actually 15 technically, but for these 14 countries is printed in the south of France. And it's a great, actually, it's a big industry for, like, for France itself, right? So that said, so now they take the U.S. dollars, the foreign, the foreign currency. They basically give them these uh, French, uh, uh, these, these, these colonial kind of money. And these countries actually cannot even actually buy stuff in the international market with this particular currency, which is actually not even useful. And France also, in turn, gets prefer preferable pricing for their raw materials, so these countries, when they have, let's say, actually, one of the actually prime example is uranium because it's actually used in uh, in nuclear plants and nuclear bombs and nuclear whatever, right? Niger is the number one producer of, in the world of like, like 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 uranium. Before Niger can basically take the uranium and sell it in in, in the international market, they have to give offer it to France first, and France can buy it at a preferable price. And then if France doesn't want it, then they can go ahead and basically and buy it and sell it in the international market, right? And then. The, the 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 European Union doesn't say anything either because they actually turn the other way as well because themselves the Europe in general gets like preferable pricing for raw materials coming from Africa so to them the relationship between French and the ex colonies is perfect for them because Europe as we know doesn't produce anything we actually found out recently through through this war with Ukraine they don't have any gas they don't have any energy they don't have any raw materials as well right. So this actually really the, the at the at the core actually that's, that's what's happening exploitation of these African countries and especially from the resource from the perspective of resources coming from these places and they get it at a prefer at a uh, at a preferential price. Yeah, I mean this uh, you know the story about what the Nazis did. This was uh, what they did in all the countries that they occupied. They would mm -hmm. take over the central bank, yes. take the gold in the central bank, yep. and then tell the people that uh, you know your uh, government your local money is broken doesn't yes. work anymore. You have to use our money, which is much exactly. better. Exactly. And they would give them their local, you know, the, the Czechoslovakia's um, uh, Deutschmark and the French yep. Deutschmark. Yep. And they take the gold and then they just keep printing more and more of this. And the people in all of those countries 
just witness the value of their money um, decline, which, uh, um, you know, initially it was not the case for the German mark, but of course it mm-hmm. did catch up because ultimately the Nazis were, um, you know, they were economic central planners. They were socialist yes. central planners who controlled economic production and that mm-hmm. had to be financed by destroying the currency. So mm-hmm. for a while they could sustain their central planning mm-hmm. by essentially being vampiric on other economies. Exactly. Basically, pillaging the uh, other economies that they had occupied and financing their war effort Mm -hmm. and their economic central planning with that. But of course, eventually that stuff uh, is unsustainable. Exactly. You know, Mises had said the same thing about the Nazis and he Mm -hmm. said the same thing about the Soviets and he was vindicated. The Soviets took longer to um, uh, arrive at that point because the Soviets were um, effectively more market-oriented in their dealings Mm -hmm. with the rest of the world, perhaps, Mm -hmm. And they were less uh, aggressive militarily towards the West. Exactly. But eventually the central planning uh, failed. But yeah, it's the same dynamic where you sub- subsidize your government spending mm-hmm. by giving people, uh, by giving foreigners a cheap form of money. Yes. And that's what the French have done. So exactly. when, when, uh, uh, when we look at the CFA, is, uh, um, do we have reliable statistics on what has happened with the supply of it and uh, who controls the supply? That is exactly actually, that is really one of the actually key questions actually that nobody knows to this day and nobody can answer, right? Because we have this foreign entity that's in charge of printing the money for other sovereign countries somewhere else in the world, right? And not actually on the supply itself, also like on devaluating the money. So we don't even have a choice. We, don't, we can't even vote. It's not like like when France was supposed to join the EU, I mean, the, Euro, the Eurozone, right? They had the, the, the citizens to basically vote whether or not they wanted to be a part of the EU, part, of, part, of, part, of, part of the Eurozone. Recently, I went to Oslo for the Oslo Freedom Fest. I was in Norway. I was actually, I was actually surprised to, re, to find out that Norway actually had their own currency. They are not in the Eurozone, right? They actually kept the Norwegian crown itself. But Africans never had a choice of actually whether or not they want to use this money, right? And then two, in 94, the worst thing for me, actually, funny enough, in 94, the year I was going to America to actually go to college, our money basically got devaluated by 50% of all years actually out there, right? So all the money that my dad saved for me to go to college, all of a sudden is worth 50% less than, than it was a year before, right? And it's actually, this happened in, 90, I mean, in 1994. And it's actually like really well documented. You can find out about it and you can read about it, especially from one, well, actually uh, the writings from uh, Alex Gladstein, right? And, I, and, 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 the, and the reason why from the French, it was, it, 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 it was going to like basically... Uh, uh, make exports much cheaper, like for these countries, so people can like buy. They can like so be, so so these Afri- poor African countries can sell more on, 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 on the international market. But in the end, who did really who, who did it really benefit? Actually, it really benefited France again in Europe, right? Because they also again they get raw materials at pretty much like half the price, right? And then so the money gets devaluated. I get to I get to actually America, and ultimately that really actually contributed to me dropping out of college because I didn't have any money actually in the end. I just didn't have enough money to basically finish what I was supposed to do. It's right so and to answer your question again you look at basically this money is printed in the south of france for these countries right who has basically knowledge of like really how much of it is being printed like how, how much actually what is inflation rate like really where actually like like do we actually have like some kind of blockchain system that will help us basically see exactly how would the issuance of this particular money Nobody let me really- guess let me guess <laughs> i'm going to take a guess you know from my experience with other similar kind of monetary systems in yes. uh, places like the us mm-hmm. they're going to tell you that the inflation rate is not about the uh, increase in the supply of the cfas it doesn't matter uh-huh. don't look at the printers you right. know let <laughs> let the french printers do what the french printers do that's not exactly. a business exactly. 
exactly. What creates inflation is the CPI measure, mm-hmm. and the CPI is you know uh, collected by government statistics, and uh, you know. Um, it's not that bad if you look at it. And, you know, maybe it's because of corruption or because of the local government. But anyway, mm-hmm. don't pay attention to the money supply. Does exactly. that sound like a convincing argument? Yep, yep, exactly, exactly. And, you know, like, and, you know, they know because because they print this money. At the end of the day, money is, is just technology, right? When you have a dollar bill and the dollar bill is, is, is pretty much like burnt halfway through, right? If the dollar bill still have the serial number, you can te- te- technically still go to like some kind of central bank and redeem basically the money or get a new bill to the place that actually that burnt out a bill, right? Now, when money is data, you realize that basically France, actually France itself, has a lot of insights into like how these countries spend their money. Where is the money going? Who's stealing what? Basically, right? Who's basically families are corrupt? Who's hiding money where? Who's spending money where? Who's who's buying mansions and like castles somewhere in Europe to hide their money? All these presidents, like 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 uh, African presidents, their families and their cronies. All of, everybody is basically hiding money anywhere in the world, right? So that's that's really what it is because you have insights into this technology and you have control over this technology because you know how to blackmail how to blackmail people. You know basically how to like really. Um, uh, really threaten people with this monetary tool. And I think actually that's what happened in Central African Republic. And that's why they chose to have Bitcoin as a legal tender, as a matter of fact. I see. Yeah, the political element here is that ultimately all these countries, um, you know, if you're a leader in that country, if you want to have a monetary system, your only option is to go along with that. That's exactly what it is. Option. Uh, you had to go with that printer in the south of France that you That's can't right. control. That's right. That's the only way that you can access the international banking system. That's the only way that you can send money to your kids in uh, the U.S. or yep. have your kids in the U.S. send money yep. back to you. Yep. If you if you want to join the 19th century century of technology mm-hmm. of money and banking, you have to go through this monopoly. Exactly. I mean, the, pa- the, the parallels are amazing. I, I, I invite listeners to re-listen to this episode and just replace the words <laughs> uh, <laughs> printer in the south of France with Federal yes. Reserve exactly. and West Africa with the world. And mm-hmm. not much changes, really. Um, yeah. I, I think it's just the faster supply growth rate um, that they do in the south of France that they do in New York at this point. But yep. uh Eventually, all uh, all uh, all inflation is hyperinflation. You know, yep, any exactly. on a long enough timeline, any inflation rate is hyperinflation. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, so uh, how how long has this been going on, and what other alternatives have there been available? So, if you were in a, in one of these countries, mm-hmm. and you thought, you know, this is not working. Could you have switched to the U.S. dollar? How easy would that have been to just go directly deal with the U.S. dollar and have U.S. dollar reserves, um, get your reserves out of the CFA, get into the dollar or the British pound or maybe some uh, you know regional African countries, uh, central bank reserves? Um, has this been a possibility? And what has happened to central banks that have tried to do this or <laughs> governments that have tried to do this? I am so glad you asked. I'm so glad you asked. So... <laughs> <laughs> what it is, what it, what it is, is that um, uh, so this has been going on since the sixties, right? Since, like I said again, uh, Senegal had had its, its independence in April, April fourth of nineteen sixty. So not even, not, not, not even that long ago. So it's been going on like ever since, right? Ever since like second, right, like shortly after Second World War, when they decided to you know give these countries the colonies because they realized that it was going to be a very, a very um, 
expensive endeavor to try to control all these countries, as a matter of fact. They couldn't have like military bases in every single country trying to control them and stuff and stuff, right? So they realized that they had to basically pull back because also like the mentality was switching as well. Africans like like realized that they really needed to free themselves from these occupiers, right? So they they pushed basically for this independence, but it was only independence on paper, right? So because again, the control has been there like forever. Now the central banks, there are two of them basically because the Frank CFA has like two zones one has seven countries, the, the, the Central African uh, Central Bank and the West African Central Bank, actually, and this, the, 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 uh, the headquarters, actually, for the West African one is in Senegal itself, right? So these central banks are not even actually central banks. What they are is like pretty much bank branches for the central bank in, 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 in actually in, in France. That's really what it is, because to me, central banks basically have they have they have like uh, they have these two these two these two basically um, not just like qualities, but actually functions for something to be called a central bank. The issuance of money actually mean like actually you control basically the um, um, how do you say like the money actually the, the like printing and making the money which doesn't happen it's made in South, like South of France it's it's not made in Africa so this is not a central bank to inflation how do you actually decide actually whether or not basically the rates of inflation I mean like basically uh, what you call it again um, uh, interest rates right like, like like central banks do basically in America they don't have the power itself right so these central banks are pretty much puppets right and they also have like 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 uh, French executives who sit on these boards of the central banks and they can veto any decisions that can possibly happen. And there's always two of them that sit there, right? And we don't, we don't really know. So are they really central banks? Not really. Now, again, once, they, once we basically sell raw materials in the international market, we cannot even receive that money. Like recently it happened, I believe, actually with Central African Republic because they sold a lot of gold in the, in the international market. And that basically money gets sent to France and France decides again to write this little entry in this book itself and give you 50% back of that money that you just sold. Before, actually, it used to be 100%. If you pay this money, if you basically, what happened before, it was that if you sell raw material in the international market, 100% of, 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 of that amount needs to be basically held, actually held in the French treasuries. Then they, fought, then, then they fought for it. Then they said, okay, now it's like 65%. Then they fought again more for, for more. Now it's okay. Now we're going to only keep like 50%. But is it really 50%? I believe actually a nominal value today is way more than 50% itself, right? So you basically selling goods. You're basically working really hard. It's almost like you're working really hard and somebody, someone else basically get to benefit from basically the labor, the, 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 the fruits of your labor, right? So even if you sell yeah. all this stuff, basically, again, it doesn't really come to you. It goes to somebody else. So for yourself, you cannot basically keep dollars, actually, or you, 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 cannot, you don't have foreign exchange reserves in your own central banks because you don't have the right to, because it's a law that actually, I'm sorry, it's a, it's a contract that basically you signed with this ex-colonizer. So now anything you basically sell again doesn't come to you directly. It has to go through, through this third party. So we don't even have a choice. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. 
Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with a nice colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Yeah, I mean, when you describe it like this, it looks like somebody came and took a look at uh, 1900 French colonialism in West Africa yeah. and had a kind of, you know, somebody who like read the Steve Jobs biography and studied uh, an MBA and worked at McKinsey for a few years <laughs> yeah. and had great ideas about how to make things more efficient, you know, yes. to do a 10x gain in productivity with a 10x reduction in cost. Uh -huh. And this is what they came up with. Like we were having to send the French soldiers to go out there and do so much stuff. And now what we need to do is just control this one little bottleneck, which is the money, yes. which is the blood yes. life of the entire operation. As yep. long as we run everything through this little organization, then we don't need to send anybody out there. We exactly. just uh, have all the money come in and we give them whatever we want and we take whatever exactly. we want. It's, exactly. it's, it's so much more efficient as yes. a way of operating the standard colonial model, which is yep. people are just there are working and uh, you give them as much as you want uh, yes. from their work. Yes. And they have no other option, you know, yeah, because other, other option. This, this is the thing. This is, this is the key point. Like ultimately it's just how can you escape this and this is where bitcoin basically becomes the only exactly exactly, only exactly. That's yes that's really what i saw it actually again when i read the white paper i thought about africa for the first time it's like this global non-governmental money that's really what it was because again because we actually have issues also because it's not really cut and dry it's not like really black and white whatever right because we understand there's corruption in everywhere in the world but there's corruption most importantly in africa itself right so if we say okay well we don't want this colonial money anymore and, and such right so who's going to be in charge of print, like printing this money? Is it going to be our governments? Can we actually trust our governments not to inflate this money printing thing again, right? Like and actually print all the money for the cronies and everything else. But we also know that in the future, money will be for sure digital. Who's going to be in charge of basically making this digital money? We don't want to use some kind of a Euro CDBC in Africa. It doesn't make any sense, right? But it's okay. So are, are actually our governments going to be actually actually minting this digital currency or basically whatever else it is, right? I don't think so, right? So, so to me, it needed to be some money that was actually non-governmental money that's actually operating in the free market itself, right? And then governments can figure out, I'm not saying like actually the disappearance of like fiat money and so because maybe that's not really feasible in the, like in the short term, but we need basically some kind of tool that is actually not governmental. There's also a hard money, which means that the supply cannot really actually like uh, increase overnight because nobody, nobody's looking, you know? Luckily we have this actually global distributed transparent ledger. We can actually control, like really verify this thing. I said, okay, well, we gotta basically look at it, look into this thing actually and see how we can possibly help us. Because we are dying, man. These countries in West Africa cannot develop, cannot develop for sure while using this basically, this, this like really oppressive currency. It's impossible for us to do so. So we have like a youth, you look at basically 14 countries in West Africa, we have over 180 million people, the youngest population in the world. By 2050, the average age in Africa is going to be about 14 years old, right? So the basic, these people are literally robbing the future from these kids. You know what I mean? So for me, looking into it, man, it hurts me, man. 
It hurts me every day. Like it's, it's like it's almost like we suffered from colonialism. We suffered from like racism, and now we're suffering. Basically, our our future is being robbed from us, like right in front of us. But technology is changing, man. It's changing. So for me, look looking at this technology, I said, okay, we have a final way, a way to fight back. And even I understand that like, like Bitcoin is like really, it's a peaceful transition. It should be like a peaceful transition. But these people are like really ravenous men, blind, and nobody's saying anything. The EU is not saying anything because again, they're getting resources from Africa for cheap. Look at France, man. They have, they don't, they don't have not a single gold mine. Yet they have the, the, the largest stock of gold in the world in the central banks. Where did they get it from? From Africa, man. You know what I'm saying? So all of our resources are ending up in Europe. And this is actually, this, this, this needs to stop. And for me, when I saw technology, I said, okay, we have this money that actually is written with open source code. Anybody can go and actually and audit this code and see exactly what it does. The, basically the, the limited emission of money, like how the money is basically put into basically the system itself, right? <laughs> I mean, transparent addresses, of course it has like, it's like, it's like drawbacks because of privacy and so forth, whatever, right? But this is the best we have right now. And we have to use it to figure out a way to get around from these people, man. And I think like for me, that's why I was so happy when I saw actually, like actually Central African Republic declare this big, big, big contender law. I never thought I would see it in my lifetime. It's almost like the people who basically designed the pyramids and they knew they were, they were not going to see the end, the end of it, right? They were not going to see the final pyramids, but they designed this thing that ultimately became like the seventh wonder of the world or one of the seven wonder, wonders of the world. So for me, it's very important that we say, okay, we're going to basically start today, like teach people let them know about this technology. Let them know about this currency itself, right? And how do we get around this thing, man? Because people disrespect Africans, man. And that actually, that needs to stop. And I'm sorry for being so, like, like but, but it needs to stop. No, I mean, you have nothing to be sorry about. I think um, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's perfectly rational. I mean, people, the, people who get upset about people who get upset, uh, it's, it's insane. I, th I think there's a, there's a far bigger travesty going on worth getting upset about rather than uh, policing people's tone. Uh, so no, I, I agree with you. Obviously, this, it's, it's a complete travesty. And it's just, um, I think this, this was um, maybe one of the ideas that many people told me was like the most powerful for them reading the Bitcoin standard is that uh, most people don't understand how this works, but really yes. that's what it comes down to. If yep. anybody has the ability to make more of the thing that you use as money, you are effectively their slave. You yes. work for them. It yes. doesn't matter how hard you work. It doesn't yes. matter how hard you save. Yes. You are uh, you are like a rat on a, on a treadmill. Yes. And the harder you run, the more you make electricity for him, for That's his right. toys. You know, it's like you're, you have these rats making uh, generating electricity to uh, run machines for you and that's that's essentially what happens when you're using somebody else's money that's it yes. if they have the ability to make more of it they're going to continue to use something else as their store of value and yeah. they're going to keep printing your store of value this is the oldest scam in history that and of exactly. course they don't teach you that scam in schools yes. because your school is almost always financed by that scam your school is, right. is an essential part that of right. making that scam works that is right you know, the way that the scam works is that they teach you that you need to use this money you yes. need to have this particular photo of this particular dead person on this uh, yes. money because you need to have these very good people in charge of holding the money because otherwise you know you wouldn't have money yes 
it's a travesty, man. Because because the money actually the money actually is a trick as well. Because they 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 printed this this number on this bill that says like twenty dollars or ten dollars. You're thinking that the money actually that that actually number is constant, but you don't realize that it's basically the money is being inflated and the money is being worse like less and less every day. That twenty dollars actually on the bill is worse less than ten dollars. Maybe it's worse 18, 18 point some dollars, right? But you don't see that because psychologically they basically actually fool you into thinking that the, the money the value of the money actually actually cut and is fixed, right? And again, also like like again like this this how, how can i say this like like i don't man i, I don't want sorry i don't want it to make it too too, too 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 political but the idea the idea is that when i saw when i saw the central african republic right and they and they decided to basically use this money right i said okay this is the first time it's actually it's already starting the demise of the cfa is already starting look at those 14 countries today right let's look at what's happening we have uh, uh burkina faso mali Central African Republic and Guinea, four, four of the 14 countries that basically have kicked out the French army out of the, uh, like out of the countries, right? If you think about it, so Central African Republic came and said, actually, Bitcoin is legal tender now. Think about actually if those four countries decide to basically have Bitcoin as legal tender again, then they can do basically global trade between them and not necessarily have to actually settle in this basically in and actually in foreign reserves, or if they can basically settle in basically BTC, they can do commerce between, between each other. Because what happens is if you sell goods in a global in a global market and you get paid in BTC, that money actually doesn't have to go to the French treasuries because they don't know what to do with the BTC. You know, so the money actually can go directly to those basically particular countries in their own treasuries, in their own public treasuries. And then if they want to basically buy stuff in the global market, let's say like a Central African Republic, they want to buy like, like agricultural stuff because Africa like really lives on agriculture. You want to be able to buy like combined harvesters, these big machines that you want to export out, out in the world, but you don't even have foreign, foreign reserves to be able to basically buy this stuff. You got to go beg France to give you foreign reserves for you to go actually buy stuff in, in, the, national, in the national market. But when you have BTC in your, in your public treasury, you can do whatever that you want, basically. The money doesn't have to go through France to a third party. It can come directly to you. And that's what's actually happening right now, right? So people are waking up. Again, there are four countries. It's just like more than half need to, need to happen. And then I, I promise you, the balance basically will be, will be like switch, you know, ultimately. But it's slowly happening because the youth knows. The youth knows that they don't want to be enslaved by this money. And it's like slowly happening now, but it, but it is happening. Okay, so now thinking a little bit more practically in terms of mm -hmm. when you think that Bitcoin is a solution, mm -hmm. um, uh, we can we can see this happening on several levels. So there mm -hmm. is, on the one hand, it's a solution for governments to start mm -hmm. uh, using as a way to accept international payments outside of the CIFA system. So yes. the Central African Republic can start. Um, I mean, they could get a uh, you know they could get an account. Um, they could get a Bitcoin account, um, even even if they do it with some kind of custodial. Uh, uh, it's a custodial service in a Western country, you yes. know, I think for all of the drawbacks of that, um, it would be an enormous improvement likely yes. over using yes. uh, the CFA. If, yes. you know, instead of using uh, a, a printer in France that you don't control, mm -hmm. if you had a choice between Bitcoin custodians to process your payments uh, for you, then uh, that would clearly be a... Uh, preferable situation yes. that's one way of thinking of it mm -hmm. but but you also have ideas about it being um uh, more of a grassroots solution yes. in terms of individuals using it they're using yes. lightning and so, and so on so mm -hmm. tell us more what why do you see this the case uh how do you see this being the case yes sure so for me for me again i just like i like i used to I used to go back, I, I go back home every year to Senegal, right? I spend more time with my mom, my, my, my family's still out there. My mom, my brother, um, this, actually, they're still out there. 
whenever I go home, like I used to go to the villages because my, my grandma is from like a really a deep village deep inside Senegal, right? But I just like observe like what's on the ground. And I said, okay, when I go to like downtown, there are like a hundred thousand banks, Bank of Africa, Bank of whatever, West Africa, Bank of National something, something, right? There's like banks littered all over downtown. But yet we have the lowest rate of bankarization in the world. Right, actually in Africa, right? Nobody, like I think like less than, less than, less than, less than, uh, I think like probably less, I think I believe that actually more than 76% of the adult, adult population in Senegal has never stepped foot in a bank, right? So nobody basically has a bank account. So I'm like, well, how, how is this gonna work? Because banks are pretty much like luxury brands, right? They, there's no difference between a bank and Louis Vuitton and Gucci and all those things. It's the same thing. When you walk inside a bank, what do you see, man? Again, wood, leather, somebody in a suit, like really, it looks like a luxury, luxury basically place. So those people don't have actually a real interest in going up and opening up a bank branch in a village, right? It doesn't actually make sense. So for you in a village, for you to be banked, you have to basically travel four hours in the city to be able to basically use a bank account. And most likely you are not very educated. So actually is a bank really gonna help you? So most people in the villages, what they do, they basically keep the money in, in basically in, in their mattresses. Right, that's how, that's how they do it, right? And now, what is the easiest way to basically send money in Africa right now? It's basically mobile money. And mobile money, I know, doesn't exist in, in, in the US or in the West, right? And essentially what actually mobile money is, is a way for you to, to basically go to a kiosk around the corner from your house. You basically give them fiat money. They give you this, this credit on your phone. And now you have actually mobile money on your phone. Actually, this, actually this, 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 this kind of a fiat kind of credit on your phone. Then you can basically send it to the village and whatnot, right? But guess who controls the mobile money in West Africa? Orange, the network from France, right? So France basically even controls the mobile money locally. And everybody knows that mobile money is like a trillion dollar industry in basically Africa itself. And, well, and of course, the mobile money is denominated in the CFA, right? In the CFA, exactly. Exactly, right? So me saying that, I said, okay, I'm like, it's a problem to repeat again. The mobile money is getting popular, but we are using the CFA. We're basically trying to, like, like, trying to get away from. So when lightning came in 2019, I was like, oh my God, this is it actually. Right. So all of a sudden, all the problems about like the 10 minute confirmation times, all these things basically have pretty much gone away. So now all of a sudden we can basically transact in like smaller amounts. It's basically almost instant and almost free. So like a small transaction fee and I can send money to anybody anywhere, really through an invoice and such. Right. So I started looking, into, looking around. I said, OK, well, how could this economy basically be bootstrapped? Right, locally, right? Because we don't know how actually people are going to use this thing. Is it really money? Is it a commodity? Nobody really knows. But at the end of the day, it's still a medium, a medium of exchange, right? So the way that I saw it was like, okay, I said, Africa actually is mostly a agrarian society. Most people live off the land. Most people basically are farmers and they live off basically some kind of activity around basically farming, right? So what I saw was a way to basically integrate like uh, lightning payments or Bitcoin payment in this basically part of actually a particular ecosystem itself, right? Which means that you have this money that is not controlled by anybody again. It's like really you can pay anybody, you can actually do cross-border payments, which means that somebody from Senegal can pay someone from Ivory Coast, someone from Mali, someone from Burkina Faso or the neighboring countries, right? Or maybe a country, even north of us is Mauritania. We don't even have the same, the, the, the same money. So how do you basically interact with, between people who want to do basically uh, commerce for cattle, for, uh, for corn, for peanut, like Senegal is a big actually producer of peanut, of maybe cashews and all these things, right? But how can we basically, basically do this exchange outside of this money that's controlled by someone else? And basically that's how I saw it. And that's, that's how I started basically looking into like global trade for agriculture 
local trade for agriculture itself and how to basically bootstrap a, a local ecosystem that's kind of like self-sustainable because obviously the person you are paying needs to also go to buy the fertilizers and all these things basically with with money so they have to have some kind of basically money to do so so if basically we have a, a, a closed loop ecosystem where people are able to like accept basically this payment this money as payment and in turn pay some uh, the supplier basically for whatever goods that, that they need for agriculture i believe we can basically start to have like a local economy that's based on a currency that's outside of like the currency controlled by these colonizers and that's how i saw it yeah um now i'm curious here uh, obviously uh, the, the obvious the obvious question is uh, in terms of mobile penetration mm-hmm. um how high is mobile penetration in uh, the cfa countries it's not very high at this point is it Actually, well, it depends. Actually, it depends what you, what you mean by actually mobile mobile penetration. Because I mean, there's a huge like I mean, in West Africa, everybody has a phone pretty much nowadays, man. I mean, Android phones are getting like becoming like sub one hundred dollars. There's a company. But I know actually, in Central African Republic, I heard something yes. like ninety percent of the population doesn't have. Yes, uh, actually, yes, yes, ninety percent actually doesn't have because it's a very it's a very poor like zone for one, right? Internet penetration actually is not very good. But actually, in Africa, we have this thing called actually USSD which is actually different from basically internet communication, right? So which means that when you have a phone, that's not a smartphone, that's like not the Android, whatever, right? You have like a small, those small Nokia phones, you can basically, ah, yes. yeah, you can basically dial, let's say star one, two, three pound and another number. And you can basically interact, like actually it's an interactive real-time system where you can basically send money without actually having the internet itself. And there's a company in uh, in South Africa, they just launched a system, I, th- I believe they're they called Chankura, and you can basically transact in Lightning with your basically USSD, which means that oh, wow. you, could, you can basically actually actually transact offline, right? Because if you look at, if you look at, okay, if you look at actually Africa, so you actually, you're absolutely right. The majority of the people in Africa, basically, the majority of people don't have internet, right? Which means actually, which means that they basically actually transact via USSD itself, right? But most of the money from VCs Go to companies. They, they basically only invest in companies where the applications actually need actually need the internet to be able to actually uh, uh, to work, right? And nobody's thinking about the people who are offline. Again, right? Nobody's actually thinking about them. Like, do we have like millions of dollars every day? You see companies in Africa, in Nigeria, they raise five million dollars here, ten million dollars there, twenty million dollars there. These VC firms like put all this money being poured, poured into Africa, right? But nobody's actually investing in actually offline systems. Unfortunately, right? Because maybe they don't understand actually what USSD means. They don't understand how people basically use money locally itself, right? And actually the majority of the people in Africa itself do not have access to the internet, unfortunately, right? And nobody's really actually talk, talking talking about that. So me, see, when I saw the company called Chankura and you can do basically lightning and Bitcoin actually transactions via USSD, I said, this is amazing, man, because people are finally getting it. And they are thinking about the people who don't have access to the internet, right? But they do have a mobile device itself. But mobile device penetration is very, very high because I believe that there are more actually mobile, actually mobile phones in Africa right now than people who live on the continent itself. So penetration is, 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 is for sure there. Okay, so it's, uh, yeah, it, it, you don't need to have internet basically to use yes. uh, Bitcoin and Lightning. That's yes. that's extremely, extremely powerful. And I think it's, uh, you know, I mean, people usually give this example that uh, Africa just uh, never installed, in, in many places in Africa, they never had the landlines and they yes. never will yep. because there's no point now when uh, everybody has mobile. And I that's think right. um, it, it might be the same for uh, fiat banking. That's right. That uh, <laughs> is just... Think about the many layers of institutions that you would need to build in order to integrate uh, the Central African Republic into the global fiat system yes, and yes. get to the point where they have the PayPal and the Venmo. Exactly. 
Exactly. Or just go on lightning. Go on lightning. <laughs> exactly. That's really actually what it is, right? How do we basically skip all the steps, right? We skip we skip landlines. We're gonna stick actually pretty much skip 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 banks, right? Because to me, I still believe again, go back to Michael Seller, the mobile revolution, his first book, right? To the book was amazing because it talks a lot about like really how mobile devices will change the world. And to me, that's really what it is. Because nowadays there's a company called Techno, actually, you probably never heard of. It's a Chinese company, right? They sell more phones in Africa than basically outside of like outside of Africa itself. They don't even sell phones in China. It's Techno, T-E-C-N-O, right? And you can actually buy an amazing Android phone for about actually less than $100 US dollars itself, right? So which actually means that in a couple of years, those phones are, are, are going to be even cheaper itself, right? So well, actually, what does it really mean? That means that basically the future of banking is an Android device. Most, I mean, I'm not talking about like outside of the West and US itself, right? The future of banking is an Android device directly connected to the Bitcoin blockchain. That's really how I see it basically, right? Because at the end of the day, it's just open source software. It's pretty much like a software stack. It's nothing really fancy about that, right? The idea is that we have this global distributed system itself, computing system itself, which can actually verify, uh, 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 you, can, you can basically prove, like you can actually verifiably prove like a transaction itself. Like actually it's actually really global and nobody can cheat anybody. It's a global distributed ledger, ledger basically. Every time a, a, a transaction is written, written in a block, we know that actually it's confirmed itself, right? So why not basically have a device that's actually directly connected to this particular actually computing paradigm? And I think actually that's really where actually the change, change will come from. It will take a little bit of time, obviously, right? Because again, there's debates about whether or not, what is money? Is Bitcoin really money and all those things? But I think we kind of think about that right now. What we need actually is basically more adoption because actually with more adoption, we can basically figure out these little, these little problems and figure out basically these little conundrums actually happening with Bitcoin itself, right? Because what we need actually is more adoption and more people basically using this, this technology. Yes, absolutely. Um, I just, I want to go back to uh, talking about the CFA for a minute. Mm -hmm. This is mm -hmm. uh, extremely fascinating for me. Mm -hmm. Now, when you, uh, when you said uh, in Senegal, you had hyperinflation, when when that happens, you know, it's not just hyperinflation in Senegal, it's, it's hyperinflation in, in all the countries that are having the CFA yes. uh, at the same time, right? Yes. I mean, and, yes. And, and like, when that happens, what is the official explanation that is given of why hyperinflation happened? You know, that's actually that's a true, that's a good question because the, the I believe the, the CFA has lost I, I think like more than damn near two hundred percent of its value since since its inception like back in like back in the sixties, right? So, but I don't think even people understand like inflation, man. They just re, they just think that um, prices are going higher. Like to them, actually, that's really I think what it is like the general public because maybe they're not educated about money and nobody, no one thinks about money. And to me, like Bitcoin is actually amazing because Bitcoin, for the first time in my life, I sat down and thought about actually what is money, right? That's really actually what the, to me what the, what, the, what the revolution was. But most people don't think about it, right? So all they think about is that oh, all they think, think about is okay, well, like prices are going higher, everything is becoming more expensive. But they don't they don't think of that they don't think actually the fact that their money is having like a less purchasing power itself, right? Because inflation itself. Right. Because actually the money supply is coming into the market itself because there's more of it. And actually there's more basically money chasing the same goods. So goods are becoming more expensive and your purchasing power is basically like depreciating or like over time. Right. So there has never been an explanation. I don't think people have, have ever even I've never seen any public debates about actually that about actually inflation. All I see basically a, a debate about is actually whether or not the Frank CFA is basically harming our society. That's mostly actually what, what actually people talk about today. Yeah, it's, uh, it's once once you see this, once you start seeing the monetary underlying dynamic, you start, 
in my mind, you start thinking that everything else really doesn't matter. Like yes. the, the kind of things that you read about in the newspaper and the news every day that people get worked up about, um, you know, the, the constant uh, array of current things that you are told that you must be outraged or angry or happy about by your local uh, propaganda yes. De yes. dealer yeah. um, is completely inconsequential compared right. to the fact that the money that you're using is being printed by somebody. You know? 100%. 100%. That's, as long as you are not addressing that problem, I cannot help but think that you are basically deliberately distracting from it because this is what I would do if I was a beneficial of this kind of system and people start pointing fingers and asking, hang on a second, why do you get to print money while we have to work for the rest of the money? I'd bring up all kinds of um, other exactly. problems for you to worry about. You exactly. know, I'd be exactly. like, well, don't worry about my money printing, you know, focus on looking at the problem with, um, you know, the corrupt local politician that you had that did this or that. Yeah. And of course, you know, obviously there are corrupt local politicians everywhere, uh, but th th that's completely inconsequential when exactly, somebody can exactly. get the money. Exactly. And actually, and actually, guess what? Guess what? Right. For the first time in, in actually in, uh, in Facebook's history, I think there was an uh, article by the Washington Post a couple of years ago in 2020. They basically pointed finger directly as people who are basically spreading fake news on, on, on Facebook. And the article is actually out there. You can, you can look it up, right? It was the French army. The French army is meddling with basically social media, because what they do is pretty much like put out basically false information out there all the time. So people are focused on other things and like really meddling with things other than really focusing on the real actually problems. Again, right, political problems like politicians or, 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 or whatnot, right? But I promise you, man, that, that is about to end. This youth, the new generation, they are tired of this situation. They are very smart. There are more activists coming from every single country in West Africa now. They are on YouTube. We have social media, right? It's becoming louder and louder and louder and louder every year. So this thing cannot go on. It's impossible, right? And regardless of the fake news, we have people actually who are more conscious about what's happening right now. More actually more conscious about actually how our future is being robbed from us right in front of our eyes because of this money that we're using. It's like useless money. It's not even useless money. Like this money, you actually, when, you, when I have it in my pocket, and you ask anybody, I lend it in, 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 in any airport in the world. I go to an exchange forum, nobody wants it. Nobody wants it, right? So the, this money is basically money for like second-rate citizens. When I go to France, I cannot use this money and yet they make it. Right. So what, what does it really mean? So you are basically making money for like second rate citizens. Yeah, it's absolutely astounding that they would uh, they, they tell people to buy a money that they don't hold. I think this, don't is, hold. this is this is this is incidentally the biggest problem with uh, shitcoins. Uh, another problem that I have with shitcoins is that most shitcoiners will. Uh, well, maybe not most, but a lot of shitcoiners will tell you that, you know, they promote shitcoins, but they still maintain the majority of their wealth in Bitcoin. They want other people Bitcoin, yeah. to get into the shitcoins because, yes. um, you know, they want other people to take the risk, but they are the ones who are promoting the shitcoins because they can print the shitcoins and exactly. they can't print Bitcoin. So exactly. they save their money in the money that they can't print, but they yes. tell you about the virtues and benefits of the money that they can print. It's exactly. a very, very common, very common uh, uh, mode of operation yes. for uh, money printers. But another incidentally, you know, when we were talking about um, uh, the, the distraction from those things, mm -hmm. worth in, it, it's very interesting here, you know, um, th there are a few organizations out there that do have a little bit of resources mm -hmm. available to them to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, study things like uh, mm -hmm. the World Bank and the IMF. Mm -hmm. And they happen to have, you know, a lot of PhDs in economics and a lot mm -hmm. of experts on Africa and West Africa mm -hmm. and a lot of um 
um, you know, ideas for how to improve Africa and West Africa. Mm-hmm. And somehow all of these ideas always involve uh, more debt. Mm-hmm. And very rarely do you ever hear them saying, hey, you know what might be a good idea? Perhaps those countries should stop using other people's money and yes. get their own money that mm-hmm. is made by something that other countries can't print, but also their own politicians can't print, like maybe gold or mm-hmm. Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't. You, you'd think with all of the uh, concern about Africa that the World Bank, the IMF, mm-hmm. uh, brings up uh, in order to sell their billions of dollars of uh, debt to these governments, mm-hmm. you'd think they might say, "Hey, maybe use something that can't be printed by a bunch of dudes in the south of France yep. for fun <laughs> on a weekend. Um, mm-hmm. Have something that's a little bit harder to store all of the wealth." Mm-hmm. Um, of your families and all of the, your future generations. Mm-hmm. Perhaps pick something that can't be done that. Mm-hmm. It's surprising how many people are so concerned with African issues and yet completely unconcerned with this one little detail, isn't but it? Is, yes, exactly right. So actually, look at actually a prime example is the Central African Republic. Like how many world organizations are present in that particular country for the last two decades? 20 plus years they've been in this country, right? They've been coup after coup after coup. Every single president that came in power in basically in, 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 in Central, Central African Republic was pretty much there because of a coup itself, right? Because they kicked out the last president or whatnot, right? And you wonder, you say, okay, how come all these like world organizations are in so present in Central African Republic? And yes, it's the second poorest country in the world with all the resources in the world. They got the gold, the, the diamonds, the, the bauxite, all the, all the basically raw materials that the, the entire world basically needs. Yet they live in dire poverty. The IMF has never been able to do anything. They have never been able to solve the problem for these people. So obviously there's a problem or they are part of the problem itself, right? So like you said, again, how do we basically, how can they like really look like, like, like really look at this happen under their watch doesn't actually make any sense. So they, I'm not like, I'm, I'm not a, like, like, cons- like conspiracy theorists, whatever, but things actually like really, like think, things have never, have never changed when these people basically were in power. And now what's happening again, things are getting more complicated. Because now the Russians are coming in Mali, the Russians are coming in Central African Republic, the French armies are being basically kicked out, right? So what is actually happening? Is the situation going to get better under basically the Russians? That'll be actually surprising because I understand how the world feels about Russia now, right, right now, but I feel like it's like a Cold War all over again, right? Like people saying that basically the Central African Republic chose the chose Bitcoin because of, because of Russia or whatever, right? Because Russia wants to have access to the resources and blah, 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 or whatever, right? Maybe it's conspiracy, maybe I don't know. But the reality is that Russia is becoming more and more present in West Africa itself, where basically the French left and left a vacuum behind. So the, basically the, 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 the Russians are basically filling in the vacuum. So what is going to happen in these countries again? Right. What is going to happen? Like no, no one really knows. So again, there's rumors again. I don't, I don't want to say this. It said actually I know for sure. There are rumors that the Central African Republic chose Bitcoin they actually because of an incident that happened between them, the Russians and the French. Right. So apparently they, they what happened was there was... Um, uh, they, 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 they sold some gold, like somewhere in, in the global market. They didn't really get the money that they were supposed to get because they were supposed to buy some weapons to basically help them fight against the rebellion happening in the country. Because apparently the president felt like he wasn't really a president because his presidency basically stopped with the surroundings of Bangui, which is the capital of, this, of, of, of Central African Republic itself, right? He felt like he didn't have control over the rest of the country itself. Can you imagine? You are like a head of state for a country. 
you are basically you sit in Washington. You only have basically control over Washington, but not the rest of the United States. That's it. Doesn't make it. Doesn't it's, make any sense. It's it's a good start. You know, ideally you wouldn't have control over Washington either, but it's a good start. <laughs> no, sure. <laughs> no, sure, sure, right, sure. But then, yeah, but 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 I understand what they were saying because what happens is for you to basically have like control, like like sovereign control over your territory and monetary control, you need to have basically control over your territory itself, yeah. right? There were rumors that the French were having airstrips landing fields actually air, like airstrips like somewhere in basically middle of central african republic where they can land plans and basically take resources and nobody would know because nobody ventures out there because all the like rebels happening and all these things so again rumors are that there was a shipment of weapon that they had that was stuck in somalia and then the president basically accidentally linked up with the russians they went out there and they say hey we have this basically shipment of weapons that will help us basically defend ourselves against these rebels, but it's stuck somewhere in Somalia. And apparently because of the world or whatever, they were like embargo on weapons and they, they, supposedly they, they were tented or whatever, right? So they want to see the Russians talk to them because they say, hey, uh, we, heard, we heard that you guys vetoed the, uh, this, this law for us to get, to, to get our weapons. And the French were like, no, sorry, the Russians were like, we don't know what you're talking about. They're like, and they, I guess they want to talk to some people. They were like, what? You have some weapons? These, these weapons actually are like outdated. You can't even use them to basically defend yourself. Let's basically help you get some weapons and get, get whatever else, basically, so you can basically be in control of your territory. So I guess that riled up the French. So the Russians gave some money to the Central African Republic. Obviously, the money cannot go directly to the Central African Republic. The money ended up in France. France blocked it. So the people were actually were like really mad and they said, okay, well, we're going to figure out a way to basically be more sovereign, have more control of our continent, have more control of our territory, have more control over our money. We're going to call the Russians to help us basically defend against this rebellion. And we're going to use basically the, the Bitcoin to be able to do global trade and basically circumvent all these basically rules by the French. And there's just rumors again, but that's what I've been finding out more and more, the more basically that I'm, that, that, that I'm, that I'm digging in there. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I think uh, it's likely that we're going to be seeing more and more of this. Uh, we, I mean, we saw this with El Salvador. Yes. Um, ultimately, El Salvador is a country that does not have a central bank. And so it doesn't stand to lose anything if its people move to Bitcoin because they're not going to miss out on any seniorage. No. In fact, it frees them from having to give their seniorage to the U.S. Yes. Uh, you know, it's it's not quite as bad. Uh, holding the U.S. dollar itself mm -hmm. is not as bad as uh, holding the CFA. Yes, it exactly. It would be the equivalent of if the countries of the CFA were using the euro, you know. Exactly. Um, if, if, if they could just use the euro and they couldn't print the euro, I think that would be uh, infinitely better than the current arrangement. Exactly. It would be similar to what El Salvador has with the US dollar. And um, some people would say this is, uh, this is a negative arrangement because it means that the El Salvador government doesn't have the ability to conduct monetary policy. Mm -hmm. But for me, this is the best thing about it. You yes. get rid of uh, the Salvadorian government being able to conduct monetary policy, and then that means they can't mess around with things. But... Uh, yeah. But yeah, but uh, I think I, it's still better to be on Bitcoin and not have to yes, absolutely, do the absolutely, US absolutely. monetary policy and just have Satoshi's uh, monetary policy instead. Exactly. And, and actually, now actually, it's funny because we, uh, we were all dreaming about basically Bitcoin adoption. And, and, and again, for me, even to be living where, in a world where Bitcoin is legal tender somewhere is amazing, right? And now, now we have basically two models. We have the El Salvador model, then we have the Central African Republic model. The El Salvador model was more like a top-down model, right? They wanted to basically have, they kind of forced the Bitcoin on the, on the, on the constituents, on the citizens. I don't, I don't think it was the right move per se, right? Because of course you're going to get pushback from people. I mean, especially people 
who are poor and really don't actually understand this technology because Bitcoin is still hard to understand. Like for, so, so for someone who's not very educated, right? In Central African Republic, it, it was a different model, right? So for them, it's more like, how do we basically use it on the government to basically like really be able to like sell our resources on, on, a, like on, on a global market? So we, we kind of see how basically these two philosophies kind of end and which one might be better ultimately, you know, because again, right, with Bitcoin, there has to be a lot of education for the local population. Because the problem is like the volatility is an issue itself, right? Like when you're poor, you cannot afford to have your your uh, your your savings decrease by 20%, 30% overnight. It's too difficult to basically for you to basically handle. And to you, actually, it's not really feasible because you have a family to feed, right? So the money needs to be constant at all times. If I have $100 in my wallet today, it needs to be $100 tomorrow when I wake up, right? It's very, very important. So for us, I think like right now, that's why actually... We cannot wait for the road adoption to get here, so the so the price can like really like um, uh, stabilize for actually people to have more confidence in this basically in this in this global money, and I, I think it's very important. And I think only the future will tell whether or not basically the El Salvador approach or the Central African actually approach was the right move basically over time. But it's the best it's the best experiments we have right now. Yeah, and I look forward to us uh, getting uh, many many more of these uh, experiences. Yes. Uh, I think. Um, I mean, for whatever you may say about what has happened with the El Salvadoran experiment, whether you think it was good or bad for El Salvador, I think, um, and, and you can agree or disagree with the president, I think just the a proof of concept, the illustration of the fact that, uh, you know, we, we, we've done a Bitcoin standard minimum viable product. It's mm -hmm. a country of a few million people and millions of them could download the wallet and receive some money and spend mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Whether they cashed out or whether they kept the money is another issue. Whether mm -hmm. it was, uh, whether you think it was a good idea or a bad idea is another issue. But I think mm -hmm. the technical um, fact that uh, it just allows us to very simply point to people, um, point to El Salvador as an example of just how Bitcoin can scale, Bitcoin yep. can work, Bitcoin yep. can be used. Mm -hmm. Everybody could use it on their phone. And all of these issues about, oh, well, Bitcoin can't scale or um, Bitcoin's too slow or block confirmations, all of these things, we saw just how lightning gets around them. Even if, exactly. um, you, you know, what, whatever you say about the wallet, it managed to get more people onboarded yes. than the El Salvadorian banking system has managed in centuries. Exactly. Actually, people actually people say like Bitcoin is slow, but I have a kind of argument for that. I said, okay, Bitcoin is, is it really slow? Have you ever actually been to a bank? How many people does a teller service per hour? If you think about it, actually, you know what I mean. So if because you think about that and you think about the number of actually transactions that are available per second for the world itself, right? I think like banks are much much slower at servicing people actually than, than actually Bitcoin is. Like human nature, like, I mean, actually for in the sure. US is all right. In the, in the US, it's okay, but I promise you, go, go go to Africa, man, just for a simple deposit or talk to the banker, man, I will be in line for about an hour, like to actually even like talk to a teller. And then you get to the teller, it's almost like they, they are doing your service and it's my money. And you're actually acting, acting like you do, you're basically doing me a service for me to basically interact with your bank. So the le level of customer service is very, very different in Africa than it, actually, than it is actually in the, like in the West, like, you know, ultimately, right? So for me, I don't even want to deal, actually have to deal with the banks themselves, you know, because they're slow and antiquated, man. It doesn't actually work anymore. You know, so we got to figure out a way to just actually get here and bring more education because as people understand the benefits actually of using the system, then actually adoption will basically grow organically. And again, if it's free market, right? Bitcoin grew, I mean, Bitcoin exploded in the free market. It's free market money, right? The market, the market actually decided that they want to use it and actually that ultimately gave it value itself, right? So I think like what's going to happen is actually it's the same thing happening with users on the, on the, on the ground itself. Actually, the market would decide. 
you know? So the market will decide, but I think like for that to happen, it needs to be like more education. And actually that's why for me personally, I focus more actually on the software side of things because I believe actually we need more builders and people who really can help us basically. And we need an army of builders because nowadays armies, they're basically technologists. It's not, a, it, they don't have guns anymore. You can basically write code and basically change the outcome of the world. Look at Bitcoin. Somebody dropped it on the internet and on Halloween of 2008, out of nowhere, right? A white paper. They explained that actually there's no monetary system, this cash to cash peer system itself. A couple of months later, the first block was basically minted January 3rd, 2009, right? But it's open source, free open source software. It's powerful, man. Absolutely. And this is, this. I mean, we can talk forever about the injustices of this system and about all kinds of injustices in the world. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of people do, and there's a lot of injustice in the world, a lot of things to get you angry and get your yeah. to boil. But the yeah. amazing thing, again, is... Um, instead of letting them get to you, is to go out there and do something about them. Exactly. And this is, and this is, I think, this is the thing that the no coiners don't get about bitcoiners. Mm-hmm. That um, th- this is why it's it's Bitcoin just seems so weird for them because mm-hmm. when you get Bitcoin, you get that um, complaining and moaning and whining is gets in the way of action and bitcoin allows you a way to act bitcoin allows you a way to make this better like you can go to somebody whose life is getting ruined by inflation you can tell them here that's right learn the dark orange arts and you can stop getting robbed by your government that's right and it it it, it, it's it's an actual solution and and it's just this is why bitcoin really um changes you and i think a lot of bitcoiners agree with this Bitcoin changes you because you go from a person who doesn't see how their actions can impact the world to yes. a person who can see the, how their action, how their actions impact the world. And so you go from being basically depressed about the fact that you're helpless and that there's nothing you can do to becoming hopeful and optimistic that you can. That do is yes, that is exactly you, man. You hit it right on the nail. That's exactly that, man. Because I remember exactly my life before and after discovering Bitcoin itself. Because I felt hopeless. Like, look at me, man. The money got my, my dad's, the money that my dad saved got devalued by half, like 50%, right? I'm thinking about devaluation and all these things. But then again, Steve Jobs said it best. He said, only looking back can you connect the dots, right? And then when I discovered Bitcoin, I started looking back again in my life, the money, the history of the money itself, the history of colonization, and thinking about all these things. And for me, I thought I was crazy. I said, why am I thinking about these global macro things, like thinking about like how countries can do business between them and global trade and all these things? I never thought about those. Like before in my life, I was just worried about my job, playing basketball, like really simple things, right? But Bitcoin opens up your mind. And actually for the first time I said, you know what? I said, the more I talk to people, the more I said, I know I'm not crazy. You know what I'm saying? The more I share my ideas, the more I get invited to basically share my ideas. I said, okay, I'm not crazy, obviously. Right. So for me, I feel like even as an individual, I have I have the power to change the world, man. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a mind boggling, actually mind boggling thought. It's almost like a software engineer. Right. You have ideas in your head that you can basically go on a computer and basically bring them to life in the world. People think about who made WhatsApp, people who made software that the billions of people in, in this actually in this world use. It was something in, the, in their brain and they basically brought it to life. Right. So I, so I think about the same thing. I said, okay, well, you know what? I can't be like, I'm not, I'm, I'm a nobody. I don't have a chance to like change whatever, whatever. Right. But the idea is that I do have the power. And again, I go back to Steve Jobs because it was my role model, man. The people who think that they can change the world, at least like they, they might, they might think they're crazy, but usually actually there's the ones who do. Right. Because I've actually have, have the belief in my heart and that belief happened because I discovered this technology because I know, like you said, I'm, it's not hopeless. 
it's not hopeless, man. We actually have a chance to like really change things. It's actually possible. And for me to look at again, West Africa at a global level, and I see like this vampire state, a vampire state, man, which is France, like sucking all the life and energy out of West Africa today and nobody's saying anything. I said, okay, well, we can't wait for somebody to come and save us. Nobody's coming to save us, man. Nobody's coming to save us, right? But the idea is that we have a tool technological tool that's so powerful, that's a global tool for us to basically be able to participate, change this code, put actually in actually our, like our own vision and insights. Because again, Bitcoin is open protocol. Anybody in the world can build on top of it, right? So it's important also for us, for Africans, not to like let the West try to save us, right? Because most of the tools come from the West. If you look at WhatsApp, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, everything, everything that everybody uses today, right, was made in the West and it was made for Westerners actually, right? Nobody has ever thought about the user, user interface or user experience for this particular part of the population. So I said, okay, well, why do we wait for somebody to come and, come and actually come and save us? We know what our problems are. So how do we use this open protocol to build the tools to basically solve our particular problems? Like solutions for our particular problems, right? We have to build them ourselves. So we can wait for no one, right? So now we have a chance. It's not hopeless. We can basically use this tool to make a difference for our future and for our kids and for the future generation of Africans. And I think it's very, very important, man. I think it's important. Yes, I do. And I agree. So tell us, what is it that you're doing? Tell us about Bitcoin Developers Academy and about the conference. Yes, yes, yes. So yes, so the Bitcoin Developers Academy is a, um, a, um, a, a online school to help basically people actually build Bitcoin applications. Because I realized that when I was learning about Bitcoin protocol development, actually it's very, very difficult and it's not for everybody, right? For protocol, protocol level development, you need like really advanced knowledge. Of course, anybody can learn that stuff, but it, I think it takes, 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 takes a while. You will need almost like master's or PhD level to be able to like really interact with this, with this particular, um, you know, with this particular software. I, I believe it's not for everybody. But what we need is basically applications built on top of Bitcoin, like layer two, layer three, like lightning and more. And I believe now with the tools that are available, actually, especially the tools that were open sourced by Block, by uh, Jack Dorsey's company, which is, a, which is amazing, which is BDK, the Bitcoin Developers Kit, and LDK, the Lightning Developers Kit, I believe actually it's becoming easier for people basically to spin up Bitcoin applications on top of the Bitcoin protocol. So I realized that actually maybe this is actually much more accessible to people. So if you have experience building mobile, mobile applications or building actually web apps, you can easily basically build Bitcoin applications on, on top of the Bitcoin protocol. So that's what the Bitcoin Developers Academy is. And to make it a little bit more accessible, so actually also like to do it at scale, so a lot of people can basically learn at the same time online. So it'll be live. It's a little bit delayed, but it'll be live this summer, uh, hopefully. Uh, again, it's a Bitcoin Developers Academy. And second, of course, like uh, we are doing the the the, the Afri Africa Bitcoin Conference in Ghana this year, uh, December seventh, eighth, and 9th in Accra, Ghana. And I'm inviting you all. Hopefully, if you can make it, to actually come out and uh, be a participant in this really um, uh, first first in a lifetime kind of event in the, in West Africa. I'm putting it together with uh, Farida Naburema out of uh, Togo. She's like an amazing activist. She lives in Ghana herself. With Gloar uh, Gloar from uh, uh, from I believe from Congo and Rwanda and there, and my brother actually is part of the team as well. And Walali here uh, also like one of our actually teammates. And we have like a lot of support from Paxful, from the Human Rights Foundation, from B Trust, uh, from all these people. We have raised quite a bit of money already, and it's happening uh, December 7th, 8th, 9th in Ghana. And if you go to afrobitcoin.org, you can register, put in your email, and you'll be notified when the tickets go on sale. And that's what I'm really excited about this end, at the end of the year, this year. Nice, nice. So what is, uh, what is the goal of this conference? What are you trying to uh, achieve from it? Tell us yeah. more. Yeah, so for me, like... Um, What's important, again, is to bring knowledge back to the continent, 
right? I've been, I've been like, I, I grew up in Africa. I was there until I was 18. And then since then, I've been, I've been in the U.S. now. Like, so I spent half of my life in Africa, half of my life in the U.S., right? So what I wanted to do basically is be able to like really transfer this knowledge and bring technology back to the continent itself. To me, this, this, that's how I felt like I can basically contribute to the continent itself, right? Bring in people who are knowledgeable, share knowledge, bring in people who know how to do practical things, make hardware wallets, make open source software, like basically seed signer, uh, Spectre wallet with, with Moritz. Like all these guys that are making like, um, like tremendous like open source software, Ben Ark from the UK, he makes like these little offline point of sale systems like, like amazing QR code based, and you can make them with like open source software, open source hardware. So as I basically travel the world and I've been to all these conferences in El Salvador, Salvador, in the US, everywhere. Like this year, I was a keynote speaker at the Bitcoin conference, right? And I met like tremendous people. I met Michael Saylor for the first time, uh, like actually in person, right? I said, okay, how do I basically bring back all this knowledge to my continent? And the best way to do so basically is to do a conference, invite everybody, come out there, share knowledge. If you know about Austrian economics, if you know about basically Bitcoin protocol, if you know about how to basically build the Bitcoin hardware, Bitcoin software, I want to invite everybody that I've met all these years to come to Africa and share this knowledge. And I'm inviting them all this year in, uh, in Ghana. So that's my goal basically, is to transfer knowledge and bring more knowledge on the ground and train more people locally so they can in turn train other people. So it's just like a, a gift that keeps on giving. And that's how I basically figure out a way to bring knowledge to the continent. Fantastic stuff. Now, tell us how how is uh, how do you find the use of Bitcoin uh, now? Do people use it? How how many people use it? Uh, are there exchanges? Are there uh, over the counter buyers and sellers? How does it work? Yes, I think like there are exchanges. Of, of course, like Binance is that is Binance is dominating like 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 um, exchange exchange world nowadays, right? But in Africa, we have Binance, we have Paxful, but we also have like local. Um, homegrown startups that are like really doing amazing actually most of them out of Ghana uh, I'm sure you uh, uh, know about Bitnab with Bernard I mean Bitnab is amazing they're building APIs they're building Lightning and Bitcoin APIs and this is like amazing there are companies I mean most of them in, in Ghana in West, West Africa in Kenya in South Africa actually so no West Africa in South Africa unfortunately it's not growing as fast actually in French speaking Africa actually unfortunately right more exchanges are not really there as a matter of fact right so the, the thing is like, it's becoming more and more over the counter. So it's mostly private groups on, on WhatsApp or Telegram, right? Usually there's a guy in there who knows everybody and he's a trusted middleman, really. You send him the money, he sends the, he kind of like sends the money, he sends, sends the BTC to someone else and all those things. But also stable coins are, are taking off in Africa. Like nobody's really talking about this, but stable coins are very much so in use, right? And you'll be surprised to fi actually find out that the most popular stable coin in Africa, in Senegal, especially right now, is basically Tether on Tron. On a Tron blockchain itself, right? Because at the end of the day, people do care about actually like actually transaction fees, right? Because yeah. again, if you are poor, transaction fee matter. It cannot it's be huge. over 50 cents, 40 cents, and all these things, right? So people want something that's fast, that's cheap. And usually people copycat. They just heard somebody doing it. Somebody say, okay, this is the best way to do so. And right now, if you go on like WhatsApp, like Tether on Tron is really the dominating stable coin, actually, unfortunately. I would say unfortunately, because I'm not a big fan of Tron, but Tether on Tron is like really one of the top really stable coins in West Africa right now. Yeah, no, I think uh, uh, the, this. I saw this myself in the Middle East as well. They're, mm -hmm. they're highly, highly useful, I think. And when we had an episode with uh, Paolo Arduino, who's uh, mm -hmm. the CTO of Tether, mm -hmm. I think that, that it's an extremely powerful technology. And I think the, the, the one problem with it is that it has to be done currently on shitcoins. Yes. And, um, you know, some people will say, well, stable coins prove that shitcoins are uh, useful. In my mind, what they prove was that shitcoins have been a very expensive distraction because 
it's not possible to scale uh, stable coins on any of the altcoins because they are mm-hmm. all you know on, on what ha- what's going to happen with all of them is the same thing that happened with bitcoin on chain mm-hmm. is too expensive mm-hmm. um to run uh you know eventually the, the transaction fees are going to rise and this yes. is the case you know right now even with tron and with all of the other uh, altcoins when you're running stable coins you're paying something like 50 cents on a transaction fee so it's still um, sometimes higher. It can go up significantly higher depending on mm-hmm. the demand. So mm-hmm. it's still not at the point where it's possible for people to be using it um, for small transactions, you know, for yes. buying your lunch and for buying your coffee. But, uh, you know, if we weren't, if we hadn't spent the last five, six years so with so many people wasting so much time on launching their own tokens, and instead that time and effort and energy had gone to develop the one network that can scale because it's the one that is built on a neutral platform that nobody controls which is bitcoin mm-hmm. if that time and effort and uh, engineering talent had gone to developing uh lightning network and developing stable coins on lightning mm-hmm. they would be scaling now in senegal and in the middle east and in latin america and all yep. over the world much faster because then the transaction fees would be much lower and that's why i think it's going to be enormously significant when we get uh lightning uh yes, yes, yes. ether Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, like, 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 lightning-based tether or Taro, the, the protocol being designed yeah. by the Lightning Labs, right? I'm, re- I'm really bullish and really excited uh, about that. I know Lalo is like an amazing engineer, and I, I and I can just wait to see actually what they come up with, like uh, on a on, on a stable side of things on, on on Lightning. And I think that's very very needed itself, right? So for me, I actually like really actually like I because I, I push more Lightning because it's, it's again it's almost instant, almost free, right? So and, and it's BTC. It, it's not really some kind of uh, you know. Uh, layer like uh, some kind of other like a uh, wild token on top of top of bitcoin right and i think also like lightning is very very important the, on, on the other side also like i actually travel quite a bit and lightning actually is even more important for digital nomads right because you are constantly traveling from one country to another and usually you don't actually have the local currency actually where you go most of the time right or you have some currency that you want to exchange before you leave that country and so forth because i've been seeing actually more than more and more those kind of problems in the digital nomad kind of world and I believe that actually Lightning could be like a really actually great tool to basically solve the particular problem with the people who kind of hop from one country to another, like, like on a regular basis. And for me personally, actually, that's how I use Lightning to solve my own problems, as a matter of fact. Because sometimes you get caught somewhere in London, America, there's no ATM or there's no way for you to get some, some local currency or your, your card doesn't work. You, you go to the ATM and your card is not supported. And I'm like, man, shoot, how am I going to get some money to buy some food or do certain things like locally, you know? But you always find Bitcoiners everywhere. You always find people actually who are very much so um, uh, understand how Lightning works and stuff and they can exchange value and like really do commerce and i think actually that's how it can be used like especially like on a global stage yeah i agree and uh, now the most important question i've been uh, meaning to ask you yes. uh, from this whole thing how are we going to orange pill sadio money <laughs> <laughs> sure <laughs> you that's told me your brother knew him huh <laughs> yeah well, actually, my brother actually knows, knows him because actually he's from south of Sen- uh, south of senegal it's like uh it's like another region actually like those guys are like really athletes man a lot of the people who are like uh, judo champions and soccer champions actually a lot of them come from there like great runners like really strong guys man so yeah but him yeah i I think like we might have to like maybe you might have to invite him and try, maybe try to get him on the on the show and see if you can talk to them and maybe actually elegantly like you know orange pill him. I think it will actually work. But yeah, but he's an amazing person, man. Very simple, very humble. And from I mean, for I, I never met him personally, but I believe he's a very humble guy and might be actually open minded to see how he can maybe see Bitcoin as a tool for us to help us move forward. You know. So I would say like yeah, 
Trying to get him on the show. I think it's important. <laughs> I'd love to. I'd, I'd yes. love to try it, but uh, yes. I'd love to find a way to get to him. Well, you know, he's he's just left my team. I'm a Liverpool fan. He just left Liverpool, but I still admire and respect him. He's, he, yeah. he was incredible. Six years. I mean, you just could always count on him to turn up, do his best. It, 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 he was just an incredibly committed and talented athlete. Yeah. And yes. he didn't get as much attention as Salah because... I mean, they're both great, but let's be fair, Salah scores a little bit too m- more goals. So yeah. Mane didn't get quite the, the credit that he deserves, but he's he, he's been incredible. And, and and as you say, the things that we hear about him as an individual, you know, like he's he's got this very old broken phone that he always carries. He yeah, never buys yeah, a new yeah, phone. Yeah. He, he's, uh, he said um, he refuses to play video games. He said, no, this is just going to get in the way of my career. And he's That's never right. played video games. Yeah. I mean, have you seen where he grew up? Have you actually seen like the village where he grew up at? It's I amazing. have, yeah, yeah. It's, it's fascinating, man. Even for me, like, uh, for me, like, I mean, the show is like actually like like resilience, man. Like those kind of people, like, always inspired, man. Like my uncle, actually, one of my uncles who was uh, the, um, the ambassador of Senegal in 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 Brazil. If if you see his village where he grew up, you're like, okay, how can a person who grew up in in his environment become a diplomat? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. To me, actually, it shows like resilience, man. So I, I love those stories, man, because they're very inspiring. And and it, for the kids, it's very very important that they keep seeing this thing actually, actually 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 happening. This is this is what I love about football. You know, somebody like Sadio Mane. You know, now he's uh, donated so much money to his village. Yes, he's made yes. his village uh, so much infrastructure. That's right. And now he's inspired so many millions of kids in Senegal and all over the world who otherwise, you know, they yes. might not have something to inspire them. But now yeah. it shows that you, it doesn't matter how poor you are. Get out yeah. there, play football, be committed. Yeah. Don't smoke. Don't drink. Don't uh, destroy your health. Yes. And you could be the next Sadio Mane. And I think that's. that's right. uh, that's enormously powerful yeah. um, as a motivation, and you Absolutely. just just need to add Bitcoin to it, and it's yes. <laughs> and also like and also, and also like strengths about how to handle Feni, because Senegal yeah. won the, the Senegal won African Cup this year, right? We actually yes. won, we beat actually Egypt, whatever, right? For but, the first time, surprising. First time, yes, yeah, surprising, right? But guess what? He missed the penalty, then he made a, then he made the second one, right? When he missed the first penalty, everybody couldn't believe actually Sadio Mane missed the penalty, man. This is a guy everyone looking up like, oh ah, whatever, right? But the the way that he was composed. The way that he still went back again and shut the last the last shot and still help us win. It's just like, man, I'm telling you, man, it's like a movie, man. It's like it's like a fairy tale story. You know what I'm it saying? Is. For, for somebody who'll be that strong, to be that resilient, man, which means that you can fail right now in, in front of the whole world. It's a global game. Everybody watching it. Your country is like residing behind you, and you come in and miss this critical, critical penalty. But yet you come in there and you just basically still score the last one to help us win this thing, man. I'm, oh, man. It, it gives me like goosebumps, man. <laughs> I know, man. I, it's amazing, I've, man. It's amazing. I've, I've always been a fan of Senegalese football. I remember 2002 yeah. World Cup when you beat oh, France in the opening yes, game. Yes, Hajid Youth. And yeah, Saturday. man. Yeah. Man, our president got on top of a car to dance in the middle of the street. <laughs> It was amazing, man. We beat France, yeah. man. I'm telling you, it's like a it's like a horror story with France, man. We got this. I know. Like, it's like a, it's like a bad boyfriend. You know what I'm I saying? Know, and, like, they, and, they, and they were world champions at that time. And yes, you exactly. knocked them out of the first knocked round. They out went the out the first round, round. Yeah, man, it was the sweetest feeling in the world, man. You know, it was the footballing <laughs> equivalent of what Bitcoin is going to do to the CFA. Exactly, exactly. Right. And, and, and also, like, I don't, I don't want to specify, man. I, I said this last time in Norway, right? I don't have nothing against French people, man. I have French yeah, friends and French girlfriend. All this thing it doesn't really. It, it, I'm not have nothing against the French population. What I have problem actually with against is the the French institution the people the 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 the, the power the, the the people who wield the power in in France that make those decisions that keep these african countries impoverished 
That's what I have a problem with. But I don't have a problem with no single French person. I will travel to France. I'm going to France basically south in August, the next next month, uh, for surfing Bitcoin in Biarritz. I'm invited. I'll be a speaker there. So I don't have any problem with, with French society or whatnot, right? What I'm saying is like, please wake up and look at the situation that's happening and how do we basically put a stop to this thing again, right? Do I put a stop to this horrible thing that's happening today? Because again, with like with this currency, we will never be able to develop ourselves. Like these countries would never be able to like get out of poverty, man. And people think that, oh, Africans are lazy, this and that, whatever, because what they see in the news, Africans are not lazy, man. Africans want to work hard. But the reality is that these African countries are poor because basically over-exploitation. That's really what it is. And they're yeah. doing it in a, in, a, in, a, in a very covered way, right? So to me, that's what I see. This is this is really the key thing that um, uh, African countries have never really had a hard money standard. They no. went from um, you know they went from all these colonial monies to um, even when they got independence, they went on easy fiat money. So Western European countries and the most industrialized countries, they went on a gold standard. So they did they did have a period mm-hmm. in which people could. Uh, work and save and accumulate wealth and think about the long term. And that's the building block for economic growth, for economic production, economic right. civilization, everything. That, that's, that's the idea. Once people have the belief that I could work today and harvest tomorrow and then keep the proceeds of my harvest for 10 years and 10 years later, I can still eat from this because I have this magical technology called money, which transfers value. Once you have that, people start becoming a lot more productive and a lot more secure and a lot more future focused. This is a very, very uh, strong point I keep repeating in my work. Yes. The hardness of our money is what gives us future orientation. That's right, that's right. And it's 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 impossible to develop this if you live in a place where the money is constantly losing value. Like, yeah. so you mentioned your, the story of your, your own father's savings devalued by 50%. You know, 90% of people for whom this has happened, they're not going to save in the same way as their father has saved. You know, no, why would no, I save? No. I could have think, you're going to always think about all the things you could have bought along mm-hmm. the way, mm-hmm. all the parties you could have gone to, all the better cars you could have bought all those years that you could have spent that money and that money wouldn't have been lost. And so people's incentive to work and people's incentive to save are very strongly correlated to the Absolutely. hardness of their Absolutely. money. Absolutely. And, and actually money, I mean, hard money was there in Africa before the, before the Europeans got there, right? You, you actually wonder how did, how did the society operate without fiat money before? Like before, like, like, like really families, women were at the core of the families. Like women stayed home and managed the household, managed the money itself, right? Saved, were able to like really distribute this money and like really raise a, the, the correct actually household. The man was in the field, they were farming basically, generating revenue for the family itself and coming home and the woman took care of the household. But the men were in the fields and like really like uh, most, mostly, actually mostly farmers, right? So the women ran basically the household. What happened? When fiat came and the European came, they basically brought this like funny money. Now you have to pay taxes in this, in, in, in this particular money. So now all of a sudden, the man had to go and work for this, for actually for this fiat money. And they became head of the household. So what happens with men? We know what happens with men. Now they want to get more wives. They want to do more things, right? They're spending money. They're not really saving actually the way that they, actually, that they were supposed to save. And not only they gave them this money basically to save for the future, but they, they didn't realize that actually this money is being inflated. And, and it really, it's like, it's like really funny money. It's not even real money. Yeah. So even at the core, the structure of like the African, Af- African basically culture was basically flipped upside down when basically fiat money was even introduced in these particular nations in, in, in the society. So before the CFA, what was the predominant thing that your family would have used as money? 
So let's say like even back in those days, right? So of course, like we had the era like where they were the so gold, 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 gold when gold. was the CFA introduced in the Senegal? Nin- Nineteen sixty, I believe. Like in during the actually like in 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 the okay. So, so before the, that, well, the, well, the central bank. Sorry, when the central bank was basically set up, I'm not sure exactly if they used like the the the, the those French coins or the euro coins, or whatever before. But actually, let's say even let's go back a little bit before, right? So it was mostly salt beads, uh, and then beads, and then also like those shells, right? But yeah. what, what happened with the beads, right? When the Europeans got there and they realized that the Africans were using beads, like those actually, those glass beads, they went back to Europe and manufactured a lot of these glass beads, came back and pretty much like just depreciated the money. That's yeah. literally, actually literally what happened, right? But that's actually what was happening before. So mostly salt. Salt was a huge actually way to basically preserve money because salt was mostly harvested on the coast itself, but they had to be transported through the desert itself, through basically because folks had to use it when you go actually basically inside the continent itself, right? So that's actually how they, they had to basically do barter. And so of course, gold because of the Malian Empire and back in those days and all that story, but we don't have enough time to get into that today. Yeah, but uh, so like in the 1950s, what would mm-hmm. your... Um, father or grandfather would have been uh, saving in at that point uh, at that or point, I should actually, say wait. mother or grandmother actually i don't want to give you for, for actually false information i have to double actually verify actually really what the cfa came into effect but they did have like some kind of currencies back then some actually uh, they, they they were printing basically in i believe in the 50s to the 60s itself right but i don't know actually what happened prior to that actually what they were using i, I gotta double double check the information Okay, well, we'll uh, we'll uh, we'll add uh, an addendum to the yes. podcast before we release it. Yes, uh, fact checking this. Yes, absolutely. Okay, uh, well, Peter has a question for you. Mm-hmm. Peter, thanks for sharing all that, Friday. That was a fascinating discussion. Oh, thank uh, you. <laughs> I want to ask a question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> thank you. I-, I wanted to ask a question about your experiences in El Salvador, uh, where we first mm-hmm. met, and how they compare to your experiences in West Africa. So I'm particularly interested in how people are actually using Bitcoin on the ground. Did you notice mm-hmm. any kind of important differences between the way people are using Bitcoin in the two regions? Um, I would say, okay, I would say like um, people, people, people in El Salvador, because of the Bitcoin Beach wallet, I believe like they actually understand how to use BTC, right? Because there's a main difference itself, because there people basically... They had two wallets, right? At the time, when I got in Salvador, they had a strike wallet, but they also had a Bitcoin Beach wallet, right? So what they want to basically preserve the currency, they will transfer the BTC to their strike wallet because actually the strike wallet had a USD balance that was pretty much fixed, right? So because they actually displayed, you're pretty much like holding USD in your in your strike wallet, right? So when they want to save, they will basically switch it over. And when they want to spend the BTC, then they can like really transfer between the Bitcoin Beach wallet and the strike wallet itself, right? That's how I saw locally on the ground. In Senegal, actually, I don't necessarily see that the people actually want to basically hold the, like stable coins or BTC. What I see actually mostly people they're actually holding in Senegal is that like they will go basically straight to the basically stable coins, right? Because they felt like BTC were just maybe too volatile or whatnot, right? Some of the people who are more speculative actually, but the people who actually understood Bitcoin and that have been holding it for a long time are the only ones that I see that they basically hold a, a balance of like BTC and a balance of basically stable coins. Right. But the average person that I saw actually in Senegal, most of them will hold like a small amount of BTC, but mostly most of the bulk of their money in the stable coins. And that's what I see basically most of the difference. Right. And also, I don't see of course, in, on, on the ground in Senegal, there are not too many people like, like taking BTC as a, as a form of payment. We don't have too many like a point of sale systems basically for BTC and merchants don't want to accept it because they don't, they don't understand it. Right. So only a few here and there peppered in the city actually happen. I think it's maybe like less than 10. But the people who I, who I know, people who are much more actually educated about this thing. Actually, 
Yeah, and they want to accept it like BTC for one girl actually that is at home. They sell basically fish, like fresh fish from the ocean, and they accept it actually BTC as payment. So we're actually getting like more those like rare cases happening. And I think basically as more people understand how to basically accept like actually BTC as payments, because again we have tourists, we have nomads, right? Those nomads usually actually have BTC in their wallets. Right, we have people from Spain, from Italy, from France, from US actually, because they come to Senegal because it's cheap. They want to buy real estate, hang out, cheap, buy cheap food, live there, maybe work remote. There's a company I can't forget what I think it's called Remote Year. They actually have a presence in Senegal now. It's very, very strong, right? So I go back to like digital nomads because them they are very much so world traveled. They understand how money works. They actually have a problem with switching money everywhere that they go, so they know how to use this BTC and the ones who want to like basically spend it locally. I believe like El Salvador has the same situation because El Salvador, not only actually the, the Bitcoin benefit, but El Salvador has benefited from tourism, right? Every year it's more people going to El Salvador who would never ever go to El Salvador because they heard about bad things about gangs and blah, blah, blah. But they get on the ground, they're like, oh, it's, it's not that bad actually. It's fairly, it's fairly safe country. You know, people are here living their lives, doing, doing their thing. But they're curious to know about like Bitcoin legal tender and they show up in El Salvador and they kind of see what they see, what's, what's happening. I believe actually in Africa, we need to have the same thing. Right, but right now, of course, uh, Central African Republic, because of the situation locally, nobody's really gonna get up and say, "Okay, I'm gonna go co-work in Central African Republic." You know what I'm saying? That's not really the plan, right? But I believe, like in places like Senegal or like Ghana, Dakar, like in West Africa, that are like very modern. Senegal has never been taken over by, by the military. We have, we have. This is one of the only countries in West Africa that has never been taken over by the military. We have never had a coup. We have always had some kind of democratic actually like uh, president president elect itself right so it's a very stable country so i think in those countries if you can open them up make it much nicer for basically digital nomads that will come and actually spend more time there but they want to spend money in the local economy they can do so basically with btc and lightning it's a very easy way and a very convenient way for you to basically spend money right so i think again go back to education if you can educate more people to basically install point of sale systems accept more bitcoin basically it makes it simpler for people to basically come in there and spend bitcoin and also again go back again to my to my academy the reason actually why i had it initially i said okay we got a problem with economy here these kids are going in the, in, in the in the they are going in the ocean and dying trying to cross and go to europe right we see it every day right they cross to the desert they have been enslaved in libya like we're talking about like horrible things happening to africans sub-saharan africans trying to cross the desert trying to go to the ocean and trying to find a better life in africa i'm sorry in Europe somewhere, right? So since we have the youngest, the youngest population in the world, and these kids are very smart because of YouTube and because of social media and all these things, whatever, right? So to me, it was very important to say, okay, say, hey, listen, we got this global money. You can basically become a software engineer. You don't have to go anywhere. You can stay exactly where you are. You don't have to worry about finding a job locally because maybe it's, it's hard to find a job where you are unless maybe your aunt or your uncle works at a particular company. You have to know someone to know someone to be able to get a job somewhere. You don't have to worry about none of that. You can worry about the global this global monetary system called Bitcoin, you can become a software engineer, you can work from right where you are and get paid in BTC directly to your computer or directly to your basically mobile device. And it changes the whole world because at that point, what actually what it does is like, it basically stops brain drain automatically, right? Because you're thinking that you might find a better life somewhere, but we all know that there's nothing in Europe. And I don't want to say, I don't, I don't want to say this to be like condescending to Europe or whatever, right? But I grew up in America, there's nothing in Europe, absolutely nothing. They don't have energy, they don't have raw materials. Everything that they have is because of Africans. Everything, everything that does in Europe today is because basically they weren't actually exploited this particular continent, right? So in, in it's more like Hollywood, right? Hollywood movies make you dream. Movies wanna make you wanna go to America. Movies are pretty much like an hour and a half commercial. That's really what it is. When you watch a movie, you wanna go, you wanna go to America. You wanna see this grandiose thing, Transformers, all these things, whatever, right? But it's all a dream. We've, we've, we've had all these things all along. 
We are the richest continent in the world. We have all the resources. Every 90% of the resources, things that are in your mobile device today come from Africa. So how can we be poor? Like, how is that possible? Again, right? Again, it's like a lack of, lack of information, lack of industrialization, because again, the European didn't want for us to basically have industries. So we take these raw materials, send it to them, and then they send us back, send us back this, this basically the, the finished product. You look at, you heard about the stories in Ghana, where people basically, cocoa farmers, that have never tasted chocolate, right? You farm cocoa, you have never in your life tasted chocolate, man. It's a paradox to me. You know what I'm saying? So the idea is like, how do we basically make it where we can keep stuff again in the continent itself, right? But the only way to do so is because the, 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 the reason people don't have actually respect for Africans, man, is because the way basically the financial system is, is cured, man. But since that nobody wants us to basically participate in this, part of, in this financial system, we have to build a parallel system that will help us basically circumvent all this basically red taping. That's really what it is, man. And that's, that's how I see it. I know it's a long way of like actually answer your question, but it's how I see Africa, basically, difference between Africa and like El Salvador, right? I, I think like that's how we can basically like really bring more adoption there and like really like on the ground, basically be able to like change things and think about those things actually in the future. And sorry, it's a long-winded answer, but that's what I, that's what I think. <laughs> What I was that, just sorry? saying it's really encouraging to hear those developments and yes. uh, I, yeah we've had the internet obviously making jobs more global but now we have money doing it as well and it's I'm looking forward to coming uh, and seeing how it's developing in that region. That's right that's right you don't have to worry about banks you don't have to worry about getting paid by, by the international company you can work from anybody in anywhere in the world right where you are and you can get it paid in BTC right to your local wallet. To me that's a very powerful concept. You don't have to worry because again, it's like nepotism everywhere in Africa, man. For you to work somewhere, you have to know someone or your, your family got to work somewhere, somewhere there for you to get a job. And to get a job in Africa, it's mostly, who do you know? It's a reality, you know? But then it's, it's, it's like really, it's like, a, how do you want to say? Like you, you, want, you want it to be like merit-based. If I got skills like a market in the international world, I want to be able to like sell my skills in the global market and get paid what I deserve and directly to me. And to me, that's a very, very powerful concept. And that's why to me, like I mean, software engineering actually allows for that to happen. You can like software is like this really amazing thing, man, that comes from your brain to your computer. It's amazing. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I'm not a programmer myself, but um, I think everybody uh, who is not currently um, retired and happily retired or working a highly productive job with a very high income um, you should probably just quit whatever it is that you're doing, spend six months learning to code and then learn and then work as a programmer. It's it's arguably a highly, a much more productive thing to do because the amount of productivity that you get out of writing a few lines of code is far larger than pretty much anything. I think very few things can compare. Very few skills um, can be as productive because, you know, you write a few lines of codes and then millions of machines all over the world do something exactly. as a result. And, and actually, yes. they make things happen. They increase value for other people. So that, that, that's that's the most uh, powerful avenue. Very few people can muster that kind of productivity. You know, you could be a very good manager. You could be a very good artist, very good writer in order to have that kind of uh, productivity that an average um, that an average programmer can get from just writing code that is not even, you know, you don't have to be the Steve Jobs of uh, programming. You don't have to be the Sadio Mane. Um, you just need to turn up and be a programmer and you could have a much higher productivity than uh, in other jobs. And that's why soon we're having, a, we're hosting Amjad uh, Masad, who's um, the CEO of uh, Replit, which oh, is nice. a company that uh, allows people to learn uh, how to code. I love Replit. Oh yeah, you use it? Oh yeah, I, I actually use it. Actually, I went I went back to school in uh, 2009, 19 in San Francisco, and that's 
musculature, that's what they use. It was like a modern, it's like a new day kind of engineering program school, but Replit is amazing, man. You can actually, like, because to me, the ability to be, to be, to be able to code in the browser is very, very important. The browser is a, the browser is like the, the distributed tool of the world, and nobody thinks about that, man. That's why I was so excited about the, the, the first iPhone. When Safari yeah. came in the iPhone, Safari changed the changed the changed the phone. The browser it changed changed the phone itself because before before the iPhone, you could only browse the internet with this thing called WAP W A P, right? It was like a protocol where you have to like really very clunky for you to basically like yeah, do these things, right? All around. Yeah, but now but now think about it now. You can have like a two hundred a two hundred dollar computer like a Chromebook, and you can basically code in the browser itself. You don't have to install anything. That's why Apple to me is amazing because then any teacher can have it. You can distribute your homeworks through there. Students like students can basically submit their homework to there. It could be actually graded automatically because obviously they can either submit the right or the wrong answer. So it's yeah. very very simple actually to do so. So the browser basically is actually revolutionizing actually computing. Yeah, I think I think the combination of Replit and uh, Bitcoin is uh, likely going to make so many people's lives so much better over the next that is right. uh, few decades. That is I think just the right. potential that, you know, at this point, yeah, uh, not, not even a $200 Chromebook, like a $50 phone. phone you get can... a $50 Android phone and yeah. learn to code and then start to code as a job on that $50 phone. And then you could be earning, you know, $5,000 a day if you... Uh, if you, exactly. If exactly. you get good at it, and 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 you don't need anything else, like you don't need a fancy education, you don't need to go to a fancy college, you don't need a professor, you just need uh, any 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 internet accessible device and a browser. You don't even That's need right. a sophisticated device. It's it's extremely powerful. It's it's powerful, accessible, right? And also, like again, which is which is what you talked about earlier is that software software is amazing because it's all about basically right once distribute everywhere. Yeah, you actually write it once, right? So actually, the it's, it's like a nominal cost of like basically distribution, right? It actually becomes even cheaper over time. You basically write once, and I, I think I actually heard this from like Microsoft back in the days, right? You basically write once and distribute everywhere, man. And that's what's so amazing about it. And you, like I said, you can do it from like a mobile device. Why not? Yeah, absolutely. Right? Why not? Absolutely. Yeah. All right, we've got one more question for you from yes. Nathan. Nathan. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Uh, you were accepted to Emporia State. Yes. Did you ever attend? Yes, I did actually. Ninety-four, yeah. Yeah, you uh, you probably played in Allen Fieldhouse. Yes, I actually actually yeah, I was I was a walk-on as a matter of fact, I was a walk-on, but it didn't quite actually didn't quite work out, man. Because of course, I, I grew up in the nineties. I was like a big fan of Michael Jordan. You yeah. know what I'm saying like to Michael Jordan changed my life, man. You can see me like I'm always bald. I always like trying to have the Michael Jordan look my entire life, right? So, but what happens is, man, like sometimes when you're a kid. You, you you don't really have the the especially growing up in Africa. I, I didn't understand about the world yet, actually. You know, because mind you, when I got to Kansas in in Emporia, it was my first time living the African actually African continent. Actually, it was my first time living my my home country, right? Mind you, and I get to like Kansas, I don't even speak English. As a matter of fact, like I'm just like having a hard time understanding even how the U.S. works. I'm in there by myself, basically without my family for the first time, and I tried to trying to trying to trying trying to be a walk on. Then actually, the reality reality of actually of America kind of hit me. And I was telling Peter earlier, I, dream, I, I, I was sitting in Africa dreaming about America, watching basketball games, watching football games, watching movies. I had this crazy idea about America, right? The, the, the streets were basically paved in gold and all these things. As soon as I land, I'm like, oh my God, this is a whole different reality. There's this thing called minimum wage. You got to work for per hour and get paid these peanuts basically, right? So I'm trying to work in the morning, clean the library in the morning, go to study, in, go to study actually at nine o'clock work out and try to do it all over again, do my homework and whatever, right? I called my dad, I said, this is impossible. 
all these dreams that I had about like America, about playing basketball, being like Michael Jordan. And also I, I got here and I realized that every single kid wanted to be like Mike, right? And all these kids have been playing basketball since, since they were two years old. Their families are grooming them to be like basketball players and all these things. So I'm thinking like, oh, I'm going to show up and just be like Mike. I'm like, no, man. It's like 3 million, 3 billion kids trying to do the same thing, right? So I got in here. I called my dad. I said, dad, I think I'm going to focus on programming. And actually funny enough, man, like, I, I couldn't speak English, but I was because actually my father was a my father was a math teacher, so he was very I was in, into like math like really really early. So I taught myself how to code, and I got my first job actually as a as a programmer in uh, Bloomington, Minnesota. Once I left Kansas, and I became actually a developer at the age of twenty one, and I was actually writing insurance for applied systems in, in Minnesota, writing homeowners and auto insurance policies software. So how long were you at Emporia? Emporia, I was there for one year. I was there from ninety four to ninety five. Yeah, yeah. Then I hey, was that. Yeah. I have a question on uh, the in Senegal. Mm -hmm. What is the impact of China? You talked about Russia, but what about China? Because they're all over yes. Africa. Yes, China is like okay. So in Senegal itself, right now, in my, in my home country, every year I go, they never used to be a Chinatown, and now there's a huge Chinatown in Senegal. As a matter of fact, right? There's a, like like Chinese are like coming, implementing themselves. They're buying like a real a lot of real estate. They are doing a lot of actually the, the construction work for the new roads and new bridges and all those things. The same, same, same they are doing in, in East Africa for that Belt Initiative, whatever they, they call it, right? And um, it's we don't have like really those big uh, I mean, train systems or whatnot, but they are very much so present. They are there. They are buying a lot of the local resources. Like Senegal is like a major actually exporter of peanut, you know, peanut, uh, the, the, the thing, the, uh, the grain, I mean, sorry, the not and they are like buying a lot of the stuff they're buying like a lot of resources and are very much so present and i see them more and more in the country itself right so i don't know exactly at what point like to what level they have like economical impact in senegal itself specifically itself i might maybe i like have to do more research but they are very 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 much so present and i do they are doing a lot, lot of import export business out, out, out of africa for sure yeah and i just wanted to comment you your uh, academy Mm -hmm. uh, I'm I'm not sure exactly what all of you're you're doing there, but mm -hmm. what I read about it in your description, uh, I I was a developer for 45 years. Nice. And I picked, I picked up a book on mastering Bitcoin. Yes, and I got 60 pages into it, and I couldn't absorb any of it. Yes, it yes, is, actually, yes. It it is, actually, uh, yes. If you don't have extremely strong encryption and math skills yep 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 and you're trying to train at the second layer if yes I yes correct. yes exactly so basically not actually at the protocol at the protocol level I, I think like it's important if somebody's curious they can actually dive deeper dive basically deeper right and they can go lower and actually learn actually protocol level encryption and like private key public key encryption and all those things right but i believe mm -hmm. like um same as basically jimmy song's book right programming bitcoin from scratch right but i believe actually that's a, again that's for like a small subset of the, of, of the population i believe actually most people who actually who already have, who already have experience building i mean uh, mobile applications actually or web applications they can actually pick up building applications on top of bitcoin itself right because in, at, at, at that time you can know how to how, how to basically how the protocol works but you don't actually necessarily have to know how to program the lower level stuff yeah so i use i use databases but i don't understand <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, um, actually, yeah, and, sure. Yeah, but, but but honestly, honestly, like the way actually that I explain it is just basically it's pretty much like a data structure. It's like a doubly linked list, right? We got basically a, a node we're pointing backwards and forward with the other one. It's immutable. And then if you can look at it that way, basically as a simple data structure, I think it's actually much more simple to actually explain. And um, a data structure is basically um, governed by encryption. It's really one last quick is. question: Do you see mm -hmm. much use for oracles? Do you see that? Yes, yes, happening? yes, yes, yes. Oracles are basically still very, very useful as a matter of fact, right? Because I believe like they are a core central piece of like distributed systems itself, right? Because unfortunately, the blockchains are like really dumb systems. It's like a really, I mean, especially if you look at like Bitcoin itself, right? It's pretty much like a dumb accounting software. It just buys basically that inputs and outputs and does basically very automatic and generates a new block every 10 minutes, very, very pretty much mechanical itself, right? So if you want to have like outside world information, especially like let's say the price of currency, the price of the USD, where do you get it from? You know, that's, that's, that's very important. So you still need like an outside system to be able to basically grab, actually grab this information and bring it back basically to the blockchain. If you want to have like what we call actually smart contracting and so forth, right? So, so far right now, the only ones that I've seen being developed actually on Bitcoin is from a company out of Chicago. Um, uh, uh, what are they called again? Sorry, I forgot. I forgot um, what they call. But they actually, it's a company that makes like this thing called uh, discrete log actually contracts DLCs, right? But for DLCs, even basically for DLC, actually DLCs to work, they need to have outside information. So you need to have basically systems that run like these actually Oracle systems. Unfortunately, they are they also like like pretty much centralized, right? So those two things, right? Where do you get the price of USD, which is like really the base price of everything for one, and also like where do you get the time? Who actually, who is in actually charge of the time? Yeah. Right? No, no, nobody well, thinks about, actually thinks about that. Well, it looks to me like there could be a market for just building an Oracle. In yes, other words, yes, like yes. a trusted source. That's right. That's right. That's or right. some unique piece of information. That's right. That's uh, right but I'm not seeing a lot of that yet. Is it just not exposed and I'm not? No, it's, it's coming. It's coming. I would say, like, I would say, like, look at like DLCs, like this actually discrete, discrete log actually contracts, and you kind of see how they implement them. Um, they actually have like a, the blog is very good. Uh, the company called Oh Short Short Bits out of Chicago, actually uh -huh. Short Bits, right? Like, yeah, S U R E D B I T S. Short Bits actually, they are like really very much so thinking about those systems. And if you look at the blog, they constantly talk about like talk about actually smart contracts and oracles and how they were thinking about building those in a very distributed manner and so forth. So very, very important. Yeah, short bits, exactly. That's the one. Actually, okay. very, amazing guys, actually. Yeah, definitely check out their blog. Their blogs are like, are like on point. Yeah. Well, don't be afraid to come back to Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Actually, I haven't been, I haven't been since I left, man. It was crazy. It was, a, it was quite a, actually a crazy experience, man. I just, uh, yeah, I, I got there and then, oh man, it was like my first year, man. I couldn't, it was like a movie, man. I, I didn't understand English, man. I, I, I couldn't talk to nobody. It was just a... <laughs> it was rough. <laughs> All right. Yes, thank you. Great to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Likewise, thank you so much. All right. Well, um, Fode, thank you so much. This has been absolutely fascinating and inspiring. Oh, thank you and, for having uh, me. Thank you. I'm really, really looking forward to hearing more about what uh, you guys get up to and having you back yes. on again to tell us more about uh, your progress on all of those things, uh, Lightning, Central yes. African Republic, and most importantly, of course, Sadio Mane. Sadio Mane, exactly. <laughs> I also, also, also would like to actually also like extend an, an, an invitation to you because I also launched my own personal podcast yesterday 
called oh, the, yeah. the four day yeah the four day job radio show so nice. one of these days also like when you are free i would love to pick your brain about actually a few topics that i that, that, that i read on the book itself and maybe we can talk more about actually the book specifically because i feel like a lot more people actually need to know about your book and maybe like really get inspired actually sure uh, i'd be happy to return the favor thank you so much awesome. i'd be happy That'd be awesome to. thank you for having me i really appreciate it man this was a, this was a blast thank really, you thank you sir pleasure is all mine take care absolutely thank you nice to meet you all guys thank you so much cheers guys all right, ciao. cheers